curiosity stream. We've walked with dinosaurs. We've explored our prehistoric planet, and we were always told the same story. Extinction came from the sky. But what if dinosaurs survived? Amazing Dino World 2. Watch it now on Curiosity Stream. With monthly, annual, and bundle plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. I am your host, Dave Scott, sitting in the captain's chair of SOR headquarters. We welcome you to tonight's show on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor. Hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on Patreon in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Our website, spacedoutradio.com, we have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news, wire, check out our swag as well. Tonight's show is brought to you by Chive Charities. Help make the world 10% happier by visiting Chive Charities today. You can find them on our website. We got a great show for you tonight. David Marler is here to talk about all things UFO, whether it's the APRO files, whether it is black triangles, we are in, and we are going to go with it momentarily. Then in hour number three, Steve Stockton joins us for a great show from Among the Missing. Following that, Super Duke is here with the final cryptid report from him of 2023. 
All right, let's get right to it. David Marler has had a lifelong interest in the subject of UFOs. He joined MUFON in 1990 as a field investigator trainee. Since then, he served as field investigator, state section director, as well as Illinois state director. He is currently an independent UFO researcher. He is best known for his work on black triangles. But tonight, David is taking us down a different path. The Secret APRO Files. This is historic. These are files that have never been released to the public. And we're one of the first to hear about them here tonight on Spaced Out Radio. David Marler, thank you so much for coming on Spaced Out Radio for the first time. So thrilled to have you here. How are you? Dave, I'm doing wonderful. And I want to thank you for being here. And I also want to thank you for your patience. You have the patience of a saint. Uh, trying to work with me over the course of, I believe, the last year with my crazy family work and UFO schedule. And uh, we finally made it come together. And my commitment to you was you would be the first broadcast talking about the Aprofile acquisition. So you, this is literally oh. a first for, uh, for, for the field and, and for you, for Spaced Out Radio and, uh, and your audience. Thank you so, so much put that trust in us and and david i want to commend you for decades of work here you are one of the premier researchers in the world i think especially when it comes to black triangles and as somebody who has seen a couple of black triangles in my life you know i've always wondered are they ours are they theirs and we're going to get into that later on in the show but for someone mm-hmm. with your passion for this we should let the public know you've never really been an experiencer you are somebody no. who has just a beautiful passion for this subject. Why do you have that passion? Well, it really started way back in 1973. My father uh, had an interest in UFOs and the paranormal. And in 1973, there was a, a wave of UFO sightings or a UFO flap in an area called Piedmont, Missouri, uh, here in the, in the United States. And uh, the initial witness was my father's best friend when he was growing up there. And so my father, my siblings were all piling in the Chevy with thermoses of coffee and binoculars to go down on weekends to look for the UFOs because the uh, the sightings had garnered a lot of media attention in the St. Louis area where I I originally uh, came from. And uh, they came back. They never had seen anything themselves, but they came back with these fascinating stories of, uh, you know, credible people seeing incredible things. And that was really a catalyst for me at an early age, at five years old. And that really started me on the journey. And it really wasn't until uh, 1990, as you alluded to, that I joined MUFON and became actively involved in the UFO subject. And at that time, naively, uh, much like uh, probably many of your audience members, when I first got involved in UFOs, uh, I thought, well, I'll go to the local library and read up on the subject. And to my dismay, there were few, if any, UFO books in the local library. And so I thought to myself early on, well, I guess I'll have to start putting together my own library. Now, mind you, I thought that that would be a little uh, four-foot bookcase sitting in my living room. Uh, now I've had to put a new addition onto the house, and uh, we now house the NICAP, the KUFOS, the uh, APRO files, and uh, truly a historic library and research center for, for visiting researchers and the general public. The fact that you have all of these files and have them under one roof, number one, your home should be a museum, literally a, a, <laughs> or, a, a museum 
first of all. We're working on we're working on a new building. We're trying to get funding locally through government officials, local and state, to actually get a public facing building because quite literally, Dave, uh, you know, we've maxed out the square footage that we have here. And uh, there's many other collections that we've received. Uh, just unfortunately, this year, uh, two dear friends of mine passed away in the UFO field, Mr. Lee Spiegel and Mr. David Perkins. And I uh, inherited uh, various elements from their collections this year, in addition to the APRO files, in addition to the late Timothy Green Beckley uh, collection that got shipped out from New York. And uh, there's two or three sizable collections on their way here after the first of the year. And we have uh, donations of materials, but we're waiting to get donations of funding to, so so we can get this public building erected. I want to say something because, and I want our audience to know how much of an upright researcher you are. You have been approached many times by many different groups that whether they were government groups or government contractors, or, the names don't matter. But you have been approached right. numerous times with personal and financial benefit on the line. And you have said no to each and every one of these groups. And I want my fans to know this because you need to be commended for that, for, for standing your ground and keeping these files where they should be in front of the public. You know, absolutely. Why have you taken such a stand? Because I'm sure, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there's probably been hundreds of thousands of dollars thrown at you or job offers thrown at you that could see you and your family taken care of, but you have denied that for the sake of public interest. And I think that needs to be commended, David. And I would just add to that, Dave, also uh, various productions that I've turned down. I, I've obviously done many productions over the years, but I always like to tell my friends and colleagues, for every production that you see me on, I probably turned down five to six. And uh, it, it, much along the same vein, if, if production companies and groups are not going to respect the data, respect the integrity of the information, and provide an accurate portrayal of the UFO history. Uh, we owe it to the researchers that collected this data. We owe it to the witnesses that came forward over the many decades to provide their testimony. That allows us to have these data sets, and that's how I view them. These are data sets that give us insights into the mystery. There's many researchers that will, uh, and lecturers out there that'll go across the, the, the country and across the globe, and they'll lecture on the UFO subject and quite often, if you really sit there and critically listen to what they're saying, most of it is just speculation, supposition. Uh, for those that have followed my work over the years, the, the lectures that I provide, everything is based on data that I can cite. Contemporaneous military reports, contemporaneous newspaper accounts, original interviews with the witnesses. I try to build an argument, build a case for these various uh, individual cases based on the integrity of the data that's provided. It doesn't matter, and I've said this many times, it doesn't matter what David Marler believes. It only matters what the data reflects. And I believe that we owe it to the general public. I think we owe it to ourselves to try to provide an accurate retelling of the history of this subject, if we're going to understand it, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to be honest with our audience. 
I, and I think you're exactly right. And the public, and you and I will fall into the same category here, the public has a right to know. It doesn't matter if you're American and wondering what the American secrets are, or you're Canadian like I am, or if you're in Mexico or right. Brazil or Europe or Australia. This is worldwide. This is a worldwide yeah. phenomena that is affecting everybody. And to have all of those files potentially land in, I'm going to call it nefarious hands, you know, mm-hmm. they would disappear forever. Yeah. And and how do yeah. you feel about being the locksmith that holds the keys and the lock to those files? Well, yeah, I do it out of, again, respect for uh, the people that, allowed us to have these materials. Uh, we'll talk about APRO here in a little bit, I'm sure, but Jim and Cora Lorenzen, husband and wife team, from 1952 until their deaths in 86 and 88, respectively, uh, they dedicated their entire adult life, their time, their dime, to investigating, to you know pursuing the subject, to, to uh, educating the general public on the subject, and APRO, uh, we often hear about MUFON today, but you know, for the younger audience out there, APRO was essentially the ones here in the United States that created the template by which MUFON and KUFOS and all the other later players came in. The, APRO really set the standard. They were a pioneering organization, and, and it, 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 we have to pay tribute to Jim and Coral Lorenzen because, as you know, Dave, and as I know, uh, when we devote our time and effort into this, it's at great personal expense. It's ex- expense from our family, time with our family, sometimes sacrificing, you know, uh, job opportunities to pursue this because we truly feel it is important. And these individuals felt it was that important. And I am overjoyed that we are where we are today with regard to the APRO files. You and I spoke earlier today, and I was working tirelessly in sorting decades worth of correspondence and news clippings, the collection is overwhelming. And when we think about those files in conjunction with the KUFOS and the NICAF files, never, and we put this in our press release, and it's not hyperbole, it's fact, never in the history of the United States have we had this many historical data sets and case files related to the UFO subject centralized in one location. It, it, as you alluded to in the, the introduction, it's truly historic. Yeah, it very much is historic. And, and as for you, when you keep looking at the files that that are coming your way, whether it's KUFOs, whether it's the new APRO files, are you really surprised that there is this much information out there that the public has never seen or that has been lost in translation? I am. And what's amazing, Dave, and you know this to be true, I sometimes have to sit back and look at this. Now, mind you, for your audience, just to to paint a clear picture, the case files I'm talking about occupy 45 four-drawer file cabinets, and those drawers are filled. And that's not counting other materials we have, but I'm talking just the case files. Um, When you look at that amount of data, it's overwhelming, both in the size and the historical scope spanning decades and worldwide, I might add. But when you stop to think about it, and again, as I mentioned, you know this, when you look at every case file that's there, there's nine other reports that probably went unreported. So imagine 45 four-drawer file cabinets, now times that times nine. 
that's probably how many reports are truly out there. But only so many people, a small minority, one out of 10, we estimate, actually reported officially to an agency where we can actually document it and have that record on file. So I've always stated, despite even getting the APRO files recently, we're dealing with table scraps. We're not dealing with the the true amount of data that's really out there because, as you know, Dave and I have over the years talking to individuals, when you're in a social gathering and people realize you're interested in UFOs and you take it seriously, people will come up to you and say, you know, I'm going to tell you this because you're interested in the subject, but I've never told any of my friends this. Back in 1972 or 1976, I saw XYZ. So... When you look at the amount of material we have, just imagine how many other reports are out there that have gone unreported. Oh, that's very true. That is very true. And, you know, I can say most people out there are not reporting it. We don't know who right. to trust. We don't know right. who to who we can trust this information from. Like, give you an example, Dave, up here in Canada, if you report if you report a UFO to the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, mm-hmm. they immediately, if there's an aircraft in the sky, they immediately will cordon off that area. But first, before they do that, that report has to go to headquarters in Ottawa, which is Canada's capital, who immediately contacts NORAD at Cheyenne Mountain to dispatch mm-hmm. the two closest jet fighters to try and intercept the craft. But guess what happens yeah. along the way? Who gets your name, your phone number, your email, your address, any eyewitness names, your age, you know, everything? The RCMP do because they're taking a report. Mm-hmm. But guess who else gets that? The government. Yep. Why would I do that? Absolutely. Why would I report that? And that's from an yeah. RCMP officer himself where I got that well, information it- from. And over the decades, of course, we've had lots of military pilots and law enforcement that have seen things. But as uh, my colleague John Alexander likes to say, you know, reporting a UFO if you're in the military or police, it's not a career advancing move by any means. Uh, and so uh, up at least up until recently with the change, at least here in the States, with regard to the Navy having policy and procedure for reporting UFOs. But historically, um you know, uh, it's very rare that we have these reports coming forward. In fact, I just came across a report today from, I believe it was the mid to late 1970s here from Albuquerque, interestingly enough. And it was a UFO report from a retired air traffic controller. And they were talking about a uh, refueling operation that nearly uh, was hit by a UFO that moved right over the the, uh, air refuel uh, vehicle. I think it was a KC-135. And uh, it's just amazing going through these reports, what we're we're finding that we didn't know before. And in fact, I thought I'd share this with you and your audience. There's one in particular that really stood out with regard to APRO, uh, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. It had always been rumored that they had inside uh, contacts within the military and elsewhere that provided information. Uh, I just sent this to uh, Chris Mellon. I thought he would be interested in this one today, and he was very much so. But this is an unknown track report, radar track report I found in the 1959 APRO files. It's directly from Kirtland Air Force Base here in New Mexico. And at the bottom, it states, after it has all the technical jargon, at first thought to be electronics interference, but was ruled out because of the speeds, course, 
and so many radar stations picking it up. A total of four stations tracked this UFO. Now, on the, the second page, there's handwritten notations. It says, on the night of September 13th at uh, 0458 Greenwich Mean Time, an unknown object was picked up by radar about 120 miles below the international border in Mexico. Within 12 minutes, this object had crossed the border and disappeared some 200 miles inside the United United States. Speed was timed at 32 miles a minute, or an average of 1,920 miles per hour. Fastest speed was calculated at 2,445 miles per hour. And that's 59. That was a year before the U-2 spy plane. Interesting. And that's that's one, by the way, that we looked in the Blue Book files. There's no Blue Book report on this. So as my colleague Barry Greenwood in Stoneham, Massachusetts, likes to say, what we're doing with the archiving and historical work is we're gathering these puzzle pieces. And the puzzle pieces are all coming together. Another example, we had log sheets, uh, original log sheets from Vandenberg Air Force Base that we discovered in a miscellaneous large box of just papers that we got from the Center for UFO Studies. It was from October, I believe, 6th, 1967, if I remember the date correctly. Jan Aldridge, uh, one of the leading historians here in the States, was visiting, as we have many researchers come to visit and do research, and he came across that. Now, mind you, I had headphones on, much like I'm doing right now, and I was on the other side of the research room, and he said, well, this is interesting. And he said, these are original log sheets from Vandenberg, and they're talking about radar tracking of UFOs. And I stopped, and I, I kind of sat up in my chair, and I turned around, and I said, what year? He goes, 1967. I said, what month? And he looked at me quizzically. He goes, October, October 6th, why? And quite literally, Dave, 10 minutes before that, I was on the other side of the room digitizing reel-to-reel tapes, which we have hundreds of. Wow. And I, I was digitizing the recordings of the radar operators from that very case. So now we have the audio recordings, and now we have the original log sheets from Vandenberg. These are the discoveries that we're making. These are the things that we're bringing together by bringing all these historical data sets together. This is why I keep saying we need a museum. We need we some, do we need somewhere where you know because here's the problem that we have, Dave, is we only got about two and a half minutes before we got to go. To- New on Curiosity Stream, we've walked with dinosaurs, we've explored our prehistoric planet, and we were always told the same story: extinction came from the sky. But what if dinosaurs survived? Amazing Dino World Two. Watch it now on Curiosity Stream. With monthly, annual, and bundle plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. Walter Brown here for Ocean's Behavioral Hospital in Biloxi. The holidays can be an exciting time, but they can also be stressful. Kim? The American Psychiatric Association's findings are no surprise. People experience rising stress levels during the holidays. We help individuals navigate the added mental health challenges the holidays can bring. If you or a loved one show signs of new or declining mental health issues, reach out to us at Oceans to explore our many treatment options. OceansBiloxi.com A break at the bottom of the hour. David Mm -hmm. Marler is our guest. Is There isn't a good replacement for the old school ufologists that are out there. 
Okay, you mentioned right. Timothy Beckley, or or Stanton Friedman was another one who's sure. his files went to the University of New Brunswick. You know, uh, thank goodness, were, thank yes. goodness, they're they're preserved. But I mean, what happens to Richard Dolan's or your files or or Grant Cameron's files or Melinda Leslie's or Lorian Fenton's or well, Linda Moulton Howe's? You know, as, as spacey as hers may be at times. Okay, like we need a place for all of this to come together. And and that's what we've created. We'll talk about that uh, on the next uh, segment of the show, but we'll talk about the organization we've set up to se- help centralize and preserve all this historical data. Where would you want to set it up? Well, we're looking to have it set up here in the Albuquerque area. I'm working with uh, this. our county here is Sandoval County. I've been working with the county commissioners as well as the mayor of Rio Rancho, which is the suburb that I live in. And uh, I've reached out to Albuquerque uh, City. They've not replied. But in the course of the last year, I've had successive meetings with the mayor's office as well as the county commissioners. They actually invited me to come and present this vision in May to the county commission. They all agreed, all the commissioners agreed that they would love to have this here. They see it as an economic boon to the community. Uh, But we see it as a way to really create this vision, create this home for the history, as I like to call it. And they have agreed to be our fiscal agent. And after the first of the year, we're looking to secure some funding through uh, State Senator Mo Maestas. And after the first of the year, uh, I'll be meeting with uh, Senator uh, uh, Martin Heinrich, who sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, who has been briefed by these Navy pilots about what they've seen. So uh, we're looking to secure local and state funding as well as private and corporate funding for this effort. Wow. You know, and to think, you know, if you build that building, that eventually, if you build it, they will come. That is such a true statement. You know, and next, you know, you'll be probably putting up one of the greatest uh, UFO conferences in the world built around those files. The, the the files can be the cornerstone of a true academic learning institution, and we don't have anything like that here in the United States. And when you think about all of the World War II museums, all of the Civil War museums, all of the art museums, we don't have one credible historical archive and educational institution dedicated to this. And it's my mission to create that institution And I'm here to tell you, I've lived here in Albuquerque for 12 years, almost 13. Every lecture I've given, I have people come up afterwards from Los Alamos or Sandia National Laboratory that are scientists interested in the subject. David Marler, The APRO Files, coming up next on Spaced Out Radio. What a night of ufology here on the Mighty SOR. We'll be right back. All right, David, uh, our audience is clear. So our radio audience cannot hear us, but our podcast and UFO, our, our YouTube audience, and Twitch audience, they can hear us. So we get to hang out with them here for a couple of Great. minutes. we got about a five-minute break here. That would be awesome, man. That would be absolutely awesome to have a museum built around those files. I mean, what? Yeah. there is no bigger middle finger that you could give the United States government than that when it comes to this. Absolutely. And the interest level is very high. I've done a lot of uh, local radio and TV news since we've just acquired the APRO files. And the response has been overwhelming. Media, in fact, I'll have another reporter, TV news uh, reporter coming next weekend. 
Um, everyone is taking this very seriously. I have to tell you that, Dave. No more tongue-in-cheek reporting. No more X-Files music playing in the background. They truly see and appreciate the vision that we have as far as creating a serious academic historical archive dedicated to this segment of American history, but as you alluded to, worldwide history. Oh, very true. Very true. And, you know, I think uh, the the hard part always with something like that is money. You know? Yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's not every day that, well, let's just face it. Outside of a, of a minor few, the UFO field is lacking a lot of millionaires. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hard-pressed to find any. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. You know, I, I, I don't think um, millionaires get taken. That's the problem. Well, what's interesting is if we can get just one key benefactor to step up and provide the money we need – they will go down in history for facilitating and making this vision become a reality. And as I've remarked to some of my colleagues, if they want their name on the side of the building, that's great. Just get us a building. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll call it whatever name the person is that's donating the money. Why not? <clears throat> yeah, why not? I mean, that's – I like, I would love to do that. That is – well. We talk about the documents and case files, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to your audience, uh, just uh, just with the APRO files alone, we have over 300 reel-to-reel audio recordings, interviews with UFO witnesses, radio shows, dating back at least to 1952. And then we have hundreds of slides, hundreds of photographs, uh, and the correspondence is amazing. Uh, almost every country on the planet is represented in their correspondence that spans, mm -hmm. you know, 30 plus years. Yeah. Are you concerned? Uh, I'm asking you this because I want to change topics after, um, <coughs> excuse me, we get back from break, but are, are mm -hmm. you concerned about the future of ufology, knowing how, political it's become how there's not a lot of researchers everybody seems to have turned towards the government rather than um good old-fashioned boots on the ground learning about this subject i i have serious reservations for the future of ufology uh especially as i've been looking back since going through the apro files the last three weeks looking at the history <laughs> obviously i have to turn the lens and look towards the future um, I do have serious concerns. Um, I, I think a lot of people are just uh, buying off on the party line, following what the government's uh, issuing in the way of statements. Yes. Um, I feel that a lot of people are just relying on the Internet to get the their source of truth. And I, I use air quotes there uh, because uh, there's so much false and erroneous information out there. Even with the history, and, and I'm talking, Dave, well-meaning people that are talking about cases and that their facts are all wrong. And that's why it's incumbent, I feel, on us that have the original contemporaneous documents, again, to ensure that the, an accurate retelling of history is being taught and is being conveyed to that next generation of enthusiasts and those that are interested in the subject. Oh, I, I hear you. I hear you there, man. You know, it's... Um... You know, it's the same thing on the radio side. You know, I expected, 
you know, in year nine where we are syndicated terrestrially, I expected a lot more radio stations to be jumping on board with late night programming like ours because of how popular mm-hmm. this subject has been. And I could tell you we've our phone has rang once in the last year. Twice, yeah. pardon me. Twice. And uh, it's difficult out there. It's a difficult game because of the economy and because of everything. David, hold on right there. I want to say a big thank you to W. Decker, T-Bone, and Major Lee for the great Super Chats. Thank you for the love and support all you guys do to help us out each and every month. Hit that subscribe button. Ring that bell if you're new. And here we go with the second half hour. Second half hour, Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Reminder to all of you that if you've missed portions of this show or others, our archives are always free on YouTube, on every major podcast network like Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're there. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on Patreon, the SOR Space Travelers Club. We're glad to have David Marler here. He is legendary in the UFO field, especially for his work with black triangles. However, we are going to learn for the first time right now that he has told anybody in this world how he has acquired the legendary APRO files. David, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you, Dave. It's it's great to be here, and it's great to be talking about this uh, now that we've finally made this achievement in securing these legendary historical documents. How did it happen? Well, first off, before how did it happen, explain to people who may not know what the APRO files are and why they're so important to ufology. Absolutely. Uh, Well, this story takes us back to 1952. Uh, A woman by the name of Coral Lorenzen lived in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, much like a lot of people, especially in 1952, as you know, there was a... Sunbelt Federal Credit Union presents a golden holiday opportunity. Start with a $500 certificate of deposit, then choose from 10 months at 5.40% annual percentage yield or 18 months at 5.60% APY. So why not take them up on this golden holiday opportunity at Sunbelt Federal Credit Union? Stop by any Sunbelt branch office or visit sunbeltfcu.org. Secure your future with smart savings. Sunbelt Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Walter Brown here for Ocean's Behavioral Hospital in Biloxi. The holidays can be an exciting time, but they can also be stressful. Kim? The American Psychiatric Association's findings are no surprise. People experience rising stress levels during the holidays. We help individuals navigate the added mental health challenges the holidays can bring. If you or a loved one show signs of new or declining mental health issues, reach out to us at Oceans to explore our many treatment options. Oceansbiloxi.com A lot of sightings in 52, one of the peak years. Uh, She had an interest in the UFO subject. She actually had had two previous UFO sightings 
uh, before the famous 1947 wave that kind of coined the term flying saucer. Uh, so she had an interest at an early age, but it wasn't until 1952 that she decided to really try to uh, create an organization that could start collecting data with regard to the subject. So that's really where the story starts. Now, her and her husband, Jim Lorenzen, uh, they moved around. Uh, they started in Sturgeon Bay. They moved to Ceres, California for about less than a year. They then moved, ironically enough, here to New Mexico in Alamogordo. They both worked at Holloman Air Force Base as civilian contractors. And then later, they ultimately moved to Tucson, Arizona, where the organization was always known for being there. A lot of people forget the early years, but in, in the latter years and towards the end, they were based in Tucson, Arizona. During that time, uh, they had secured a worldwide network of correspondence and researchers and uh, specialists, PhD specialists in various fields. And they had garnered uh, one of the largest historical collections of UFO case files, news clippings, and correspondence, both domestically in the United States. They had a huge uh, uh, amount of material coming from South America uh, through uh, particularly one individual, Dr. Olavo Fontes in Brazil. And some of the famous classic cases that we have were as a direct result of Dr. Fontes working down in Brazil. Uh, but they also had European contacts. They had contacts in Japan. And this is the material that I've been sorting through the last few weeks. But uh, unfortunately, uh, Jim and Coral were really the people and the driving force behind the organization. They had a board of directors. Um, but unfortunately, uh, uh, Jim passed away, I believe it was in 86, and Coral passed away in 88. And in 89, the remaining board members made a decision to transition the files over to this new organization called IQ4, International, uh, uh, I believe, Center for UFO Research. And it was by, uh, uh, it was by these two individuals, uh, Brian Myers and Tina Choates, that uh, they had collected these files. Uh, unfortunately, after they had obtained them, and I can't speak to the rationale or, or explain their, you know, their uh, actions, but essentially those files were not within the public domain at that point. And so literally for 35 years, these files have been uh, privately stored. Uh, I was told that only Jacques Vallée had had direct access to those files during that entire time period. So you can only imagine that, and I'll tell you the story how it happened. When I received the files here three weeks ago, Dave, it was, it was quite literally like opening a time capsule going back 35 years and opening these boxes, opening these files for the first time. And it was uh, surreal is the best word that I keep coming up with. I tell my wife that it, it's just surreal that we're now having access to these files after this 35 year moratorium. Uh, but the backstory and how I received them uh, in November of 2020, uh, I became a board member for CUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies that Dr. Heineck had founded. Uh, as a result of that, the board decided to transition the Center for UFO Study files and the NICAP case files, as well as Dr. J. Allen Heineck's original Project Blue Book documents, here to Albuquerque, whereas I was already building an archive. Uh, as a result of that, I decided to reach out to uh, Tina Choate and Brian Myers, uh, who lived in Sedona, 
at the time. And many people over the 35 years had requested to see the files, had requested to get copies of the files, had offered thousands of dollars to obtain or purchase the files. And uh, either those uh, requests were left unanswered or uh, a very simple reply was, was issued, but nothing ever came of it. So I decided to take a different approach. I decided they have the historic APRO files. I'm now curating the historic KUFOS NICAP files. Rather than being like everyone else and asking for something, I thought I'd try a different approach. So I emailed Tina uh, at the time and just introduced myself. I I never assume people know who I am, so I just introduced myself and mentioned that I'm in the neighboring state of New Mexico. You're in Arizona. And the two of us are in unique positions. We're both curating these historic, rare UFO collections. And I simply offered that if they ever need any information, if they ever need any data, if they're ever curious or would like to see the files, I make them available to them. And I I pretty much left it at that. I just wanted to give a polite overture and let them know that I'm in a very similar situation that they are. I received a very courteous reply from Tina. Unbeknownst to me, though, I didn't realize that at that time she was battling cancer. She didn't allude to it at the time. Uh, And I thought in the next several months to a year or so, we'll reconnect and slowly build a relationship. Well, then I found out that she had, uh, in in the subsequent months, had passed away from her cancer. So I reached out to uh, the same email address, assuming that her husband, uh, her her uh, widower, essentially, might be monitoring that email. And I just simply extended my condolences because uh, I had lost family during COVID, uh, had lost my mother re- uh, very close to that time period. And I stated that I've gone through a lot of personal loss myself, and I just want to convey my condolences for what you're going through. Um, I received a reply, uh, but that was it. Nothing more, nothing less. And I continued just to do my work with the KUFOS and the NICAF files. We're currently doing a high-level digitization project of trying to get all those case files scanned so we can make them available to the general public. Well, fast forward in time, just to about a a, a little over a month ago, uh, November 1st, I'm sitting in my office and I'm doing my day job, and I get an email out of the blue uh, from Brian Myers. And it's stated something to the effect, David, I know you've expressed interest in the APRO files. Can I get your number? Because I'd like to talk to you about them. I was shocked. I, this literally came out of left field. Uh, so I sent him my uh, phone number. And within two to three hours, I'm getting a phone call from Sedona, Arizona. And uh, Brian conveyed to me that, you know, with Tina's passing, he's going through a lot of changes, obviously. Uh, He's 74 years old. He's getting older. And he's in the process of getting ready to move. And he felt that the time was now right to pass the torch to the next generation. And he said, I've been aware of you. I know of your research. I've watched all your lectures online. I appreciate your passion for the history. I know you put this organization together that's predicated on preserving the history. And I've had three or four uh, researchers that have visited your home that have contacted me suggesting you as a possible recipient for the files. And so uh, he said, I would like to come and meet with you. This is obviously a very big decision, but I'd like for us to get a read with each other and make sure we're on the same page. 
And I said, well, certainly, uh, we'd love to have you come out. My wife and I would love to have you come and visit. He said, well, I'd like to come out in the next two to three days. So all this happened very fast. Uh, so the first weekend in November, uh, he shows up here. He, he drove five and a half hours from Sedona. We went to breakfast, lunch, dinner, really had a chance to connect on a personal level. I had never really known him other than who he was. Um, and we were both on the same page, showed him the work that we're doing with the archiving, the collections that we already had amassed, and he was suitably impressed. At one point, Dave, I made the remark. I said, well, you can see I've got lots of file cabinets here. And he looked at me and smiled, and there was a little twinkle in his eye. And he said, well, Dave, you're about to get a lot more file cabinets, which was his indirect way of pretty much saying that you, the APRO files are going to be on their way. Uh, he, he pretty much stated he had made his decision before coming out, but he just wanted to meet with me in person. Um, and so uh, about two weeks went by. And I thought we might have the files transition before the end of the year. To my surprise, he stated that the weather was starting to look kind of uh, wintry in Sedona. And he'd like to personally deliver the files. I didn't have to go get them. He drove a, a, a moving truck loaded with 13 four-drawer file cabinets and 60 six zero boxes full of historical UFO material. And uh, the weekend right after Thanksgiving here uh he delivered those files and for the last three weeks now i've been sorting those files trying to get them in some semblance of order uh we talked earlier today dave and I, you could hear me rustling around with all the boxes um it's an incredible time capsule of ufo history from 52 to the 1980s wow in just the short amount of time that you've had these files what's sticking out for you Oh, I knew you'd ask me that. Uh, since you're in Canada, I want to share this with you and your audience, and I have not mentioned this publicly yet. Again, I, I told you, if you, if you, since you were patient with me, I would give you some really nice exclusives. We have, and I had heard that APRO had this, and I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it at first. But in going through the file cabinet drawers, in the very front of one of the drawers, in front of all the files, there was a small little narrow box wedged in the front. I pull it out, and it has the name Mihalik on the front. Nice. I open it up, and it is, it is the glove, the left-hand glove, that Stephen Mihalik. Walter Brown here for Ocean's Behavioral Hospital in Biloxi. The holidays can be an exciting time, but they can also be stressful. Kim? The American Psychiatric Association's findings are no surprise. People experience rising stress levels during the holidays. We help individuals navigate the added mental health challenges the holidays can bring. If you or a loved one show signs of new or declining mental health issues, reach out to us at Oceans to explore our many treatment options. OceansBiloxi.com Happy Holidays from Ashley! Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The New Year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax and delivery may be required. See store for details. I touched the flying saucer back in 67. Oh. There was oh. also a folded piece of paper on the inside of the box 
and I opened it up, and it was a swath of his shirt that had the burn marks. So adding to that list that I provided you earlier, we have, like I said, audio, documents, correspondence. We also have physical evidence. Uh, We have a couple metal fragments from two South American cases that were provided by Dr. Alavo Fontes uh, from 1957. Uh, I just came across uh, uh, an envelope today that had angel hair listed on the front, and there's this strandy, sinewy, white, fibrous material on the inside. And so we're finding physical trace elements to some of these things in addition to the case files themselves. I, I have to ask, what are you going to do with the Mahalik, uh evidence? DNA, well, we're looking, DNA tested? Those are, well, I, I, I need to probably get with Chris Rutkowski just to see what, what uh, work has been done previously on these things. Uh, obviously, if we can provide them for some type of analysis, we'll do that. But I think that these are things, and I think you'll agree, Dave, these types of historical artifacts that really connect people with these cases, uh, these are the things we want to have displayed in the, the historical archive. This is what will draw people in. They, they've heard about the case, but now you can actually see the artifacts from some of these. I want to totally give you a high five for that. Totally want to give you a high <laughs> five. I mean, honestly, you open up that drawer and you see that. That's like winning the lottery. That's like opening up a pack of baseball cards and and getting a Mike Trout rookie card or Shohei Otani. I've had that experience with several different things that I found in the collection, but I've literally, I'm not joking, had to sit down when I saw that. When I opened the box, I just sat down and just kind of took it all in because I had heard that APRO had the glove and they had uh, a fragment of his shirt. But again, with the passage of time, just because the, that was in the collection at one time does not guarantee that it's going to be there in 2023 when I receive the collection. Um, but there's there's other artifacts that we're coming across as well. And we do, from other collections, we have a lot of original Project Blue Book artifacts and uh, uh, some other artifacts from other elements of UFO history. Please tell me more about the angel hair. Yeah, I didn't look at it very closely, but uh, it was a case from, I believe, 1967-68. And I opened it up, and it was just this white fibrous material. There were actually two envelopes with that. And uh, I've been sorting this feverishly, Dave, so I really haven't had time to like really go into detail looking at the reports. Otherwise, I wouldn't get anything organized or sorted. I should be finished by this weekend with the rough sorting, and then I can go back and do a really deep dive into some of these highlights if you want to call them that in the collection my god i don't my jaw is dropped right now i'm not i'm not gonna lie because that the stefan mikulik case to me is the most underrated case in the world yes i agree yes we had you know a lot of evidence from betty and barney hill we had evidence from travis walton okay but for some reason just because it's a canadian case it gets overlooked, and there is so much evidence there, and he's still alive. Well, the, the thing the thing that's important to, to note is, talking about Canadian cases, uh, I had the pleasure last year of being invited to Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia, 
And uh, I was always fascinated by that case, even as a kid. Uh, APRO has a fairly extensive file on the Nova, on the uh, Shag Harbor case. And I opened that up and I have the full front page newspaper headline that talks about that something apparently crashed in Shag Harbor. I have the original front page headline of that case. And it's well documented. Uh, there's no doubt that something crashed. Something was moving under the water. There was some attempted retrieval operation. Um, I, I may get stones thrown at me for saying this, but I remarked to uh, Chris Stiles last year when I was there, uh, with all due respect to my friends in Roswell, I would argue there's more evidence, solid evidence, for Shag Harbor than Roswell as far as contemporaneous documents that document recovery operation, sightings, uh, USO, object moving under the water. I talked to one of the, uh, Lori Wiggins, that's one of the surviving witnesses, and he was talking to myself and Nick Pope and describing this series of events that he witnessed as a teenager. Yeah, it's to me, that is just one of the cases that we need to know more of. And, you know, maybe it's because it didn't happen in the United States that it doesn't get the credibility that it deserves. But knowing the fact that for years he had radiation burns that would just show up in the patterns and and the shirt probably still has radiation in it and DNA and burnt skin and everything that we could possibly want, you know. Medical evidence, medical evidence that oh. something happened to this man. Shag Harbor, I don't care what anybody says. You know, I've seen Discovery Channel take submarines into different places. I still believe that somewhere in that Shag Harbor area, there is evidence underwater. Quite possibly. And the question is, what was that yellow foamy material that everyone right. saw that eventually dissipated? I mean, there, there's so much evidence for Shag Harbor. It's it's just amazing. I knew that when I went there, but then after hearing and speaking with Chris and the research that he had done, I was just blown away by by the amount of work that he did on that case. You also mentioned, and, and there's so much in my head right now in the way of material that I've been sorting the last three weeks, you mentioned Betty and Barney Hill. I have another exclusive for you. Oh, no. Uh, and I, I just shared this with Kathleen Martin uh, two days ago. In going through the correspondence, I found lots of letters from Betty Hill. Uh, I Forgive me, I don't have it with me right now. It's in the research room in the other room. But I found of one of the original letters is a subsequent UFO sighting that her and Barney had before Barney passed away, obviously. Uh, near Boston, where they saw this UFO circling around a commercial airliner in broad daylight. Wow. And I sent it to, to Kathleen. Anytime I find anything Betty and Barney Hill related, I send it to, to my friend Kathleen. Yeah, how can And I said, not? Kathleen, I'm not sure if you have this, but I, I had to send this to you. And she said, David, she goes, I did not have this. She goes, this is wonderful. Wow. Wow. You know, it, it's amazing 60 years after Betty Barney Hill, because we just celebrated the anniversary recently, how there is still evidence today coming out that nobody knows about. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and having access to these historical archives, we quite literally don't know what we're going to find as, as evidenced by uh, the evidence from uh, Stephen Mahalik's case, uh, Betty Barney Hill, 
Uh, and then another update uh, for those that may re recall this case uh, back in the 1950s, uh, really the first abduction, well, well researched abduction case prior to Betty Barney Hill was the Antonio Villa Boas case from Brazil. And again, this is a story that came through Dr. Alavo Fontes, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, this was a really incredible abduction case, and it has hallmarks of the modern abduction phenomenon, but this happened back in 1957. Uh, we always thought that this was a, much like Tra Travis Walton, it was a one-time event. It didn't have subsequent experiences after that. I just found literally yesterday a, a piece of correspondence uh, from Irene Granchi, who is a later Brazilian researcher, she tracked down uh, uh, Antonio Villa-Boas in the 1970s and spoke with him. And in the letter, she states that in speaking with him, he stated that recently he had telepathic communication that he attributed to these beings that he experienced back in 1957. We've never heard of this before. This is the first we've ever come across a reference to subsequent contact for lack of a better term, with these things that he encountered in 1957. Such incredible history, David. We got 90 seconds to go here. I mean, going through and, and tapping through just the beginning of these files, and I know it's going to take you months, if not a couple of years, to go through them. <laughs> how, how blown away are you by what you have seen so far? Uh, I to use the the British term, I'm gobsmacked is the best word I can use. I'm just uh, sometimes my jaw drops open and I have to kind of catch myself and, and close it. Uh, some of the newspaper accounts, the military documents, like the radar tracking I alluded to, uh, things that we were completely unaware of that we're now discovering. And uh, it, you know, th there's a phrase that they use, like in the automotive industry, they call it new old stock. This is new old stock as it relates to UFO case files. Uh, they're old old information, but it's new to us because we're seeing it for the first time. No kidding. God, I want to be in your shoes. Do you, do you have an extra room? Can, can I come over? <laughs> come and, and visit. Come and visit. All right. Who's coming with me? We're going to pile up a big motorhome and go down to David Marler's place and read into these APRO files. Uh, David, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going to go to sure. break here at the top of the hour. And when we return, we're going to find out, you know, why were these APRO files so sealed tight? We're going to find out a lot more. And I know he has more cases and everything that he wants to discuss with us here on Spaced Out Radio. You are hearing this information from David Marler for the first time ever publicly. The APRO files unsealed on Spaced Out Radio. We are so lucky, so lucky to have this opportunity to hear this information tonight. Stay tuned. Hour number two continues right after this. I got to figure out if I, if I can find a screwdriver to tighten up my jaw. Holy cow. <laughs> well, I'm still, as I mentioned earlier today, I'm still going through boxes. And I told my wife uh, a number of times, I quite literally don't know what I'm going to find every time I open one of these boxes. Uh, I'm finding rare newsletters going back to 1953, 1954, extremely rare newsletters. 
And sometimes they're mixed in with just general correspondence that, that really don't have much information. Right. David, I'm going to take a quick break here. I'm going to put you back in the green room. we got about five minutes here, and uh, I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Be right back, audience. Stay tight. More of this is coming. This is incredible tonight.
Okay, we are back. Yeah, we got about 90 seconds and bring David in here momentarily. Derek Galloway, what's happening, my man? Bring that there. David, uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I made a few notes of other things that just came to mind from the collection that we can maybe touch on. Yes. There's I, so much. It's just it's mentally overwhelming, and sometimes I just have to walk away from from the material because it's just it's there's just so much to mentally take in. Holy cow! I just want to I just want to see a picture of it. You got to send. Oh me, yeah, you got to send me a picture. I I can definitely. In fact, I can probably do that while we're just chatting here. Oh my gosh. While we're waiting, uh, uh, thank you to T-Bone Times 2, W. Decker, and Major Lee for the Super Chats tonight. Very much appreciate the love, and uh, wow. I want to remind everybody that we will be having programming here on Christmas and Boxing Day or December 26th. Uh, I will not be live uh, because of the holiday, but because I will be out of town and traveling but uh, we'll have something here for you so that way you can hang out with your friends. And, uh, yeah, Jorgen Johansson, how you doing? From Patea, Sweden. Here we go, everybody. Here's hour two. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook Spaced Out Radio Show. Here we go with hour number two of Spaced Out Radio tonight. My name is Dave Scott, and we're talking some very memorable, memorable cases from APRA with David Marler tonight on the show. And you're going to have to listen to the replay on this one if you're just joining us. Hello, everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, Talk Stream Live, at KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Wagonette. Wagonette is your password. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as the Clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us on Patreon in the Space Travelers Club. Here we go. The secret APRO files unlocked. David Marler is our guest tonight. David, that last half hour just blew my mind with what you were sharing with us and the evidence that came about. I mean, every day that you open up a new file is potential jaw-dropping information with not only the paperwork but the evidence involved. I mean, how do you prepare yourself? Where do you start? Well, right now, as I mentioned, I'm just doing a rudimentary organization of the material. Uh, a lot of the material, when apparently APRO closed their doors, this stuff was just thrown into boxes. So um, I'm really trying to separate uh, articles, reports in one pile, correspondence in another pile, 
And throughout all of these boxes, I'm finding miscellaneous case reports, which are being filed chronologically, where the, the majority of the reports are currently in the file cabinets. Um, in addition to that, uh, I've had to separate out, as I mentioned, about 300 reel-to-reel recordings. We have the small two-inch reels. We have the five-inch reels and then the large seven- to eight-inch reels. Uh, one of those, by the way, I, I, I wanted to mention to you, Dave, there was a, an APRO member named Hal Starr, and he was a broadcaster from the 50s up until the 80s. He did a radio segment, uh, I believe it was a weekly installment, called UFO Report. And what it was, was about a five to six to seven minute little vignette about a particular case or type of cases within the UFO field. And he would incorporate interviews with researchers and witnesses. Uh, I, I don't have much detail on it, but I'm here to tell you, in going through all of these various boxes and trying to bring all these tapes together, I realized very quickly these very large reel-to-reel audio tapes, I found a number of them that said UFO report. And when I started looking on the edge of the box, there were volume numbers and episodes listed. I was able to get these organized. We have episode 1 through 190, 190. Happy holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. So we have this incredible audio uh, testimony and historical record of UFO reports. And I popped one in today just to hear and test the, the sound quality. And uh, it incorporated uh, Coral Lorenzen, who, as I mentioned, was one of the founders of APRO. And she's talking about one of the Brazilian cases from the 1950s. So just that series alone, just these 190 segments would be an educational tool for, for the general public, just to be able to hear the history in these, these productions that Hal Starr put together. Um, another person that uh, comes to mind is Travis Walton. Uh, when I started going through this a couple weeks ago, I reached out to Travis to let him know that, look, I don't know if you heard about our press release. We now have the APRO files. The reason I reached out uh, it had been stated over the years that he had reached out repeatedly hoping to see his file because APRO was the closest investigative agency in Arizona where Travis had his experience. Uh, Travis always wanted to see his file. Uh, reportedly, based on one of the board members that later uh, relayed the story, uh, Travis was given one piece of paper and said, here's your file. Well, I'm here to tell you the file's about this thick. And in that, we have reel-to-reel uh, -reel recordings of the polygraph examiner actually administering the lie detector test to Travis and his brother and other members of the logging team. We have photographs. We have uh, correspondence from the, the very early days of the story when it first broke, uh, original newspaper clippings. 
it's a huge treasure trove of material. And I wanted Travis to know that, look, we have this material. Once it's all assembled, we're going to make copies of this. And certainly, if he wants to travel to New Mexico and see the originals, he's more than welcome. My goodness. What what would that be like, being able to sit down with Travis and have that conversation with him and just bring it forward? I, I'm really hoping you're you're planning on putting a lot of this on video. Oh, absolutely. Uh, digitization is our goal. Unfortunately, we're going to need a larger facility to do this. We have the material, Dave. We have a list of volunteers here locally that have stepped up saying we want to help. And we've had some benefactors donate some incredible digitization equipment for film, video, audio, uh, and documents. But we don't have the space to adequately create workstations where the work can really be done at the level it needs to be. So, uh, again, that's why we're looking to get this uh, funding for an archive building so the work can really be done at the pace that it needs to be done. Uh, but those are some of the interesting ones. And I, I wanted to mention to you in the audience that uh, we do have these other historical data sets. I mentioned NICAP. I mentioned the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, NICAP and APRO really were uh, the pioneering force in the United States in the 1950s, 1960s. Of course, MUFON came along in 1969. Um but what's important, I think it's an important distinction we have to make, and I'm certainly seeing this in the files, NICAP, under the leadership of Don Kehoe, they really tried to stay clear of entity and abduction accounts. They were more interested in sightings of objects, and they really didn't want to go down the road of humanoid sightings and abductions. APRO was a complete departure from that. They cataloged numerous humanoid reports, and they were one of the pioneers in collecting abduction accounts and not only abduction accounts, but experiencer accounts. And that really was through the uh, efforts and collaboration with Dr. Uh, Leo Sprinkle. Uh, of course, Leo was a, a pioneer when it came to looking at the experiencer reports. Uh, just today, I think I went through at least 30 pages of correspondence uh, between uh, Dr. Sprinkle and Jim and Coral Lorenzen on these experiencer uh, account. So if anybody wanted to write a book on early experiencer accounts from the 1960s, 1970s, there's just a treasure trove of material there. Is there anything that you expect to find on maybe human or animal mutilations in there? I've uh, actually started assembling a file on mutilations. I'm finding material uh, left and right uh, in various boxes. I'm trying to pull all that together. I found about 40 news clippings. Now, mind you, we have a lot of other uh, mutilation material from other researchers. What I want to do is centralize all that and have one master cattle mutilation, animal mutilation file data set uh, that's been pulled. There was a, a woman by the name of uh, Becky Menchel that used to be here in New Mexico. She passed away a number of years ago. We inherited her material. Uh, and I'm also very uh, close friends with uh, Greg Valdez, the son of Gabe Valdez, who is a New Mexico state trooper who did a lot of the early pioneering work on cattle mutilations here in the state of New Mexico. And I have access to uh, Greg's father's material as well. Again, pulling all this data together, what insights might we gather in looking at patterns, correlations, and trends? It's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, this literally, I mean, we're talking about this news, but 
this is just the foundation stone for research that can be done by other people once we make this data available to everyone. This is just way too amazing. David Marler is our guest tonight talking about the secret APRO files. I got a couple questions here from the audience uh, for you, and Corey wants to start things off asking if you've had ever any information on Operation High Jump. I don't. Uh, I haven't come across any material in the NICAP, KUFOS, or, or APRO holdings on High Jump at this point. Not to say I won't find it in a box in the next day or two. <laughs> All right. And the desolate one from across the pond asking, whatever happened to Betty Hill's dress? Didn't it have residue on there? He says, I remember thinking that or reading that. Yeah, it did. And Dr. Phyllis Bunger, who I know, she's a dear friend. Uh, she did some analysis on that several years ago for MUFON. Uh, I do believe that the dress, the, the remainder of the dress, I should say, I believe that is now in a museum uh, in New Hampshire or out in the East Coast somewhere, uh, if memory serves correctly. Uh, although I will tell you that Dr. Budinger uh, told me that she's uh, hers is one of the collections that we are going to inherit in the future. And she told me that she still has some pieces of the dress that were left over from her chemical analysis. And so that's another artifact that we'll have in addition to Stephen Mahalik's glove and shirt, in addition to a number of these other artifacts from some of these classic cases. And you can imagine, Dave, to have a display of those items with the contemporaneous newspapers, with vintage audio recordings of people describing the events. You can imagine how we could pull all this together and it would just be Disneyland for anyone interested in the UFO subject. What other fascinating findings have you come up with yet? Uh, well, I'm trying to think. Uh, you and I, I think earlier today you mentioned our friend Katie Page. She's yes. done some research with the uh, ranch in Colorado. And, of course, there's been uh, a number of locations in Colorado that have had a history of very unusual activity, UFO sightings, orbs, entities, uh, very strange experiences that, that really go beyond just UFO sightings themselves. Um, and what I'm finding is uh, a number of humanoid cases, UFO sightings, and paranormal activity that I've heard Katie lecture about and that she's personally experienced. I'm seeing very similar themes expressed in these contemporaneous case files from the 1960s and 1970s and in some of these same areas, including animal mutilations. And so I, I just messaged Katie yesterday, and I told her, when you come out here, there's going to be a lot of information for you to go through. A lot of information. I mean, I mean, how do you, you know, protect these? Do you have, do you worry about maybe them, somebody breaking into your home or and stealing these files? Do you, do you have them insured? I mean, how do you protect these? Yeah, insurance is, I've had that come up a number of times. It's very hard to insure a collection like this because there's quite literally nothing like it. And it's hard to put a monetary value on this very important history. Uh, but insofar as uh, security, uh, we have a, a state-of-the-art security system and we quite literally have cameras all around the house and property. So uh, if anybody decides to, to knock on my door or sneak around my property, uh, it's going to be captured on video and, and we have an alarm system. So, 
and I have two retired neighbors that are retired Air Force. And if anybody has retirees as neighbors, that they're better than watchdogs because if a if a car pulls up in front of the house and they don't recognize it, they're immediately calling me saying, "Hey, there's a car outside. You, are you expecting company?" So perfect. We have lots of eyes and ears and cameras. Perfect. You know because we got to protect this at all costs. You know, that's just the way, way it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. You know, as you go through, what do you expect to find? Do you expect to find more hands-on cases where people are getting abducted and having the, the ultimate experience? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm finding it, like I said, I, I mentioned Leo Sprinkle's material. Uh, there are some incredible cases that are documented by Dr. Sprinkle, but not just Dr. Sprinkle, many other researchers as well. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be – what's interesting about the collection, Dave, is whatever your area of interest, I guarantee there's something in those files that would that would draw your attention, uh, whether you're looking at abductions, sightings, uh, people that are experiencers, poltergeist activity, uh, precognition. Happy holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Sometimes during Christmas, something magical happens. Hey, Cricket customers. The Max with Ads plan is included with the Cricket $60 Unlimited plan at no additional cost. And this holiday season, Max is the one to watch when you're feeling festive. Son of a nutcracker! Cozy up to all the holiday classics, like Elf, 8-Bit Christmas, and the Harry Potter 8 Film Collection. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. Phone plan streams and standard definition programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See CricketWireless.com for details dreams i mean there's so many different elements that are contained in those files and quite literally for the first time i think we're going to have these files organized better than they ever have been as i mentioned i'm finding just random case files thrown here and there in various boxes i've been working for the last three weeks diligently trying to get all of those in chronological order um and some of the letters i have to say this dave i I always uh, fail to mention this uh, and and I, I'm going to accuse historians of doing this, and I'm including myself in that category. So let me be very clear about that. Quite often when we talk about historical cases, we're really good about saying this event happened at this location at this time to this individual. Well, that's completely devoid of the human experience. And, and as you know from your experiences, Dave, uh, personally, these are extremely emotional, psychological, mm-hmm. and some would even argue spiritual experiences and i've stopped in the sorting and i've actually had to read some of these letters there is so much emotion in these narratives these these are extremely personal narratives in some cases and you cannot be humbled by reading the emotion that's in these letters going back 20 30 40 50 years um i I, like i said i i taking my historian hat off for a minute i mean you have to acknowledge the, the personal level of these experiences and how they've impacted these individuals. Oh, trust me. Trust me. There's not a person who has experienced anything on this planet who does not sit down at least once a day and say, why me? Why did this 
happened to me? Why am I a part of this? Why am I different than everybody and else? And what's interesting about this, Dave, also, many of these reports were penned in the 1960s and 70s, but some of the accounts purportedly go back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Right. People that would write, I've sat on this for 30, 40 years and never felt comfortable relaying it to anyone, but I happen to hear of your organization or I happen to see Jim or Coral on a documentary and I feel like you're the right person that could understand and appreciate my experience. So it's almost like reading a confession in a sense that these people are opening themselves up and conveying this information for the first time. But you can't come away without like not feeling for these individuals when you read some of these very heartfelt narratives that they've written. Very true. What do you expect to find in there about J. Allen Hynek? Because we know he was oh. a big fan of APRO. And uh, coincidentally, Absolutely. last week, we actually had Paul Hynek on the show. Oh, excellent. I plan on reaching out to Paul. I just was going through some material today. At the very bottom of a box of about 200 news clippings, I found some of uh, uh, periodicals that were written by Hynek, uh, some related to astronomy going back to 1954, and uh, I believe one was from 1961. Uh, but I found a number of other personal items. I found a yearbook from his prep school days and his pictures in there as a young schoolboy. And so I planned on reaching out to uh, Paul just to let him know that I have those and see if he'd be interested in having those. Wow. Well, do you think the impact back then of J. Allen Hynek giving credence to APRO is something that the organization was able to quickly expand upon because of Project Blue Book? Yeah, I, I think his endorsement went a long way beyond the, the the actual credible work that they were doing to get them the you know notoriety and, and to get them the recognition for their efforts. I will share with you, though, uh, we're talking about credible cases. There's some really great human moments, and uh, I'll have to send this to you, Dave. Uh, I found about three days ago, going through their photo catalog, they, they have all these photos uh, of UFOs and personalities and individuals, I found this wonderful picture, and I sent it to Mark Rodiger at the Center for UFO Studies. It's a picture of Jim and Coral's uh, in-ground pool in Tucson, Arizona, probably mid to late 1960s. And there's a picture of Hynek on like a little floaty noodle, uh, noodle and Jim Lorenzen, and they're both in the pool together. It's just one of those little human moments. You always think of Hynek at a lecture podium with a tie, very prim and proper, and they're just both sitting on this little floaty noodle like this in the pool. I thought it was a great human moment to see Heineck like that. No kidding. No kidding. Why Why are you still so excited about this? You know, and it's an easy, you know, throwaway question that anybody can ask. But, I mean, yeah. you're like a kid in a candy store right now, and I understand that. Why does this excite you? What are you hoping to see from a certain case? Well, I don't know about a certain case. It's it's really taking a step back and looking at the totality of the information we have. And, you know, something that I'd like to say, because this has been really weighing on me, especially in the last few weeks, although I've, I've felt this over the course of the last year, so many people are just hanging their hopes on the U.S. government coming forward with disclosure with a capital D 
And it's kind of schizophrenic when you think about it, Dave, because a lot of the people you and I know, they have this fundamental and probably well-founded distrust in government authority, right, over many decades. But yet at the same time, they're losing sleep waiting for the government to disclose the information. It's like, but this is a group you don't trust, but yet you're waiting for them to disclose the truth to you. What I would like to say is we've already had disclosure with a lowercase d by virtue of these historical data sets that we already have in our possession that are already accessible to the general public. We have literally, and this is not hyperbole, tens of thousands of civilian UFO case files, sightings, humanoid encounters, abductions, experiences, radar engagement, photographs, audio recordings, interviews, uh, there's enough data already within the public domain that we should be looking at. We shouldn't have to wait for the government to come clean and, and give us the answers. Isn't that the truth? I don't even think the government knows what to do with this subject. After I would agree. You know, I mean, it's such a confusing time as to what is going on. I don't think the players playing, you know, even understand what a ufo is they've been hiding behind right. this uap crap for so long that they don't know if if they're looking at something that's american with a uh, a very dark star on painted on it or if right. they're looking at uh, their own shoelaces or a ufo they can't tell the well, difference and, and in answer to your question i get excited because i see this history I know other people want to see the history, and I want to be able to make this accessible both physically but ultimately down the line with funding digitally worldwide where people can access and see all of this data that I'm seeing because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and there's a lot lot smarter people out there if they had access to this data. As I, I think you and I have talked before, I've never been arrogant to think I'm going to come up with the answers to the UFO mystery. But I feel that any one of us, any one of your audience members, if given the opportunity to access this much data, we might find insights into trends, correlations, patterns that could be a stepping stone in the eventual understanding of the UFO mystery. David, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we have you for just one more half hour here on Spaced Out Radio talking about APRO. And we're going to try and squeeze in some famous black triangles as well with the legendary David Marler. Oh, my gosh, this has been amazing tonight. First time ever hearing about what's in the APRO files right here on Spaced Out Radio. What a lucky Christmas present. We continue right after this. I think we need about a six-hour show to do this one. <laughs> Gosh. I really do appreciate this, Dave. This is amazing. No, I, I've been anxious to talk about it, and I've had, I, I didn't mention to you, Dave, I've had about four or five other people wanting me to go on their show, and I told them, I said, I can do it after December 19th, but I can't do it before. and Because I, I committed to you that you would get the, you would get the exclusive on this. I appreciate that, you know. Um, well, you were you were patient waiting for me, so that it's it, it, the least I can do. Well, you know what? We got to get you to our fan party in Reno, 
And I could, oh, I it, could tell if I come you, to that, I'll have to bring some of the stuff from the from the Apro files. Oh yeah, and and I could tell you, our fans like I know that uh, Mama Catherine's going to be there. Tim Mothman, many people in our chat room tonight are going to be there, and uh, you know what? They would all love to probably uh, sit down and have a drink with you and just say, "Hey, man, like this is." amazing and thank you for sharing it with us i mean that's why we got the greatest greatest uh listeners around we really do absolutely yeah no it's it would be great to meet everyone and talk about it and try to address questions and obviously you know we can't address all the questions you know in one show but uh and maybe by then i'll actually have a, a more fundamental understanding of what's in the collection because again right now it's it's a feverish mad dash just trying to just get a rough sense of order and then then i can go back through with a fine-tooth comb and really start combing the information see if i was a if i was a casino in las vegas or, or reno i would totally totally want to bring this in oh happy holidays from ashley Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. I can't wait for what's next. Even with higher stroke risk due to atrial fibrillation in a regular heartbeat not caused by a heart valve problem. Eliquis, the Pixaban tablets, reduces stroke risk. It's the number one cardiologist prescribed blood thinner. Don't stop taking prescription Eliquis without talking to your doctor, as this may increase your risk of stroke. Eliquis can cause serious and in rare cases fatal bleeding. Don't take Eliquis if you have an artificial heart valve, abnormal bleeding, or have antiphospholipid syndrome. While taking, you may bruise more easily or take longer for bleeding to stop. A spinal injection while on Eliquis increases risk of blood clots, which may cause paralysis, the inability to move. Get medical help right away for unexpected bleeding or unusual bruising, or if you have tingling, numbness, or muscle weakness. It may increase your bleeding risk if you take medicines such as aspirin products, NSAIDs, SSRIs, SNRIs, and blood thinners. Tell your doctor about all planned medical or dental procedures. Learn more at Eliquis.com or call 1-855-ELIQUIS. Absolutely. You know, and and display it and and get everything in there, much like they, they do with the Titanic exhibit, or the the human mummies or the human body, uh, whatever they do there, okay? Because I'm I'm too grossed out to go see that. But I mean, <laughs> this is or like King Tut's tomb. This is something that would be totally up for a a a casino to just, especially knowing the history of UFOs and aliens in absolutely in Vegas. Or, or well, I, I just I just remembered something else. You just tripped my mind on something. If we have time when we get back, I've got another another special thing to share with you. Sure, from from the Apro files. From the Apro files, okay. I just remembered something else and and an interesting story I'll share with you and your audience. All right. Uh, yeah, we could totally do that. We could totally do that. Hey, Cal Korf, how you doing? Uh, good to, oh, is Cal joining us? Cal's joining us. 
Oh, excellent. Uh, I, I was sharing some information with Cal the other day yeah. from the collection. Been a while, Cal. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, he's over on our Facebook side. Oh, excellent. And he's like, would you like to try and do something in Reno? Oh, if Cal Korf is coming, you know, the best part about it is, Dave, There's everyone's invited to the party. <laughs> everyone's invited. Well, and Cal's no stranger to APRO. I just sent him a picture I found of him with uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen back in the 1980s. Oh, nice. Very nice. Yeah, Cal, if you want to come too, you can come too. Everyone's invited. <laughs> Terrible times. How you doing? Good to see you. And uh, don't worry, Cal, the archives are always free here. We don't charge for archives, so you can rewind it at any time and listen to it. Uh, yes, yes, Kira, even the CIA and NSA are welcome at our parties. You know, why not? Why not? All it takes is one of them to slip up. <laughs> Big thank you tonight to Michael, W. Decker times two, T-Bone times three, Gizmo, and Major Lee for the Super Chats. Very much appreciate the love. And don't forget, everybody, there is no ugly swag at our store at spacedoutradio.com. Nothing ugly there. Hoodies, T-shirts, even underwear. It's all sexy stuff. All sexy stuff. You just go there and uh, check out... um, spacedoutradio.com and our store. Yeah, we love you. And um, you're absolutely right, Cal. What Dave is doing is truly historic, and I think the Lorenzans would be honored. 100%. 100%. Great comment. All right, guys, we're going to get going here in four seconds. Hold tight. past the halfway point of Spaced Out Radio tonight. Thank you for joining us in our UFO talk tonight. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. You haven't, um, if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. We're on every major podcast network, whether it's Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Play, and everything in between. Website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show. And on Patreon, the SOR Space Travelers Club. Here we go. Final half hour. Researcher David Marler filling us in for the first time. Heard live. The APRO UFO Files. David, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Dave. During the break, I mentioned that there was something else I recalled that I'd like to share with you and your audience for the first time. Uh, A number of times I referenced correspondence, and I'm not just talking correspondence from just the average citizen that may have had a sighting. 
Um, and this is, these are the examples of things I think that people would love to see once we have an archive where we can have these behind plexiglass and they can look at the original documents. We have a number of uh, fairly popular names of individuals that had correspondence with Jim and Coral Lorenzen over the many years. Uh, one of the most prominent, and we have a series of letters that spans about 10 to 12 years, Carl Gustav Jung, father of Jungian psychology. Wow. Actual letters from Carl Jung signed Carl Jung to Coral about the flying saucer or UFO subject. That is incredible. And in addition to that, Another one that comes to mind, we have two or three letters from then State Representative Gerald Ford from the 1966 Michigan sightings. He was in correspondence with Coral, and we have signed letters by Gerald Ford. How many other presidents do you think you have in there? Uh, I don't know. The The correspondence is uh, – there's actually a four-drawer file cabinet of correspondence that I haven't even gone through, that I haven't even touched yet. Uh, I'm just going through the correspondence that was thrown into boxes, and then I'm trying to integrate those into the existing files. What's in there, I have no idea, to be quite honest with you. Um, but talking about Carl Jung, obviously the father of synchronicity, right? He really helped instill the idea of synchronicity in our lives. And, and the concept of that, I had a, a, a very interesting synchronicity. And this is a great story I'll share with you and your audience. Um, uh, shortly after we received the files, local TV news, who I'm in close touch with, said, we want to do a segment on this. This is great. You're expanding the archive. So I did a little TV news segment. I get an email the next day from a gentleman. He lives just about three miles from where I do uh, here in the Albuquerque area. He said, I saw you on the news and I heard APRO referenced. He goes, I have background knowledge of APRO. It's too much to put it in an email. Could we meet for coffee? So about two weeks ago, I met him at a Starbucks for coffee. And as I was going out the door, Dave, I had a file that uh, was of a sighting from 1972 that occurred in the same area where he resided. He told me where he lived, what neighborhood. And just for giggles, I thought, you know what? As I'm going out the door, I heard a little voice. Take that report. He'd get a kick out of that. So I grabbed this report. Now, remember, this is one of thousands that we have in the APRO files. But I grabbed it, and I took it with me. And I said, you know, by the way, and his name was Mikey. I said, by the way, Mikey, I said, uh, I know you're interested in the APRO files, but I want to share this with you. This is one that was a sighting just, you know, about a mile or two from where you live. And he looked at it, and he read it, and a, a big smile goes across his face. He then flips to the second page, Dave, and he points to the bottom. He goes, Dave, do you see the signature of the investigator? I said, yeah. He goes, that was my father. Oh, my. I said, what? He goes, that's why I wanted to talk to you. My dad was an APRO investigator. He used to get calls from Tucson, Arizona, and my dad would say, Mikey, go get the kit and load it in the Jeep. We got a case. He goes, I used to go out on field investigations with my dad, and he had constructed this wooden box with a metal handle. He had his Geiger counter, his sampling equipment for, for landing trace cases. He had a compass. He had all this other equipment, and he would get a call from Tucson, from Jim and Coral, and, and he would say, we got to go, Mikey. Go get the kit. We got a case. 
And he said, that's why I wanted to meet to talk to you. And now you're bringing me this. And then he proceeds to tell me, Dave, this guy, uh, and I can't remember his, his name off the top of my head. I know him. He's a personal friend of mine. I'm still in touch with him. I can get you to meet with him to talk to him about this 1972 case. Wow. Incredible. What are the odds of that? A needle in a haystack. Exactly. But I thought back to Carl Jung with synchronicity. I mean, if that's not synchronicity, I don't know what is. I don't know either. I I haven't been able to figure out an answer for this entire show because my jaw is still <laughs> dropped on the Michalik stuff. I do want to change topics for the last 15 minutes we have, or so that we sure. have, if you don't mind, because I would, be, I would be remiss if we didn't get into black triangles at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, I believe there is patterns of areas where these things are flying. What's your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, looking at short duration periods where there's flaps, like in North Carolina, 1975, you had a one week period. But then there are those areas that seem to have prolonged periods of activity where it spans years or decades. And uh, uh, I think you are aware of one of those in Canada uh, where there yeah. seems to be this prevalence of black triangles being seen over, I believe, many years or decades, right, Dave? Yes, that's uh, just east of Vancouver, you know. Yeah, but uh, and so I've 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 received a lot of reports over the years from Canada, uh, various witnesses, both uh, modern as well as historical cases that people are reporting years later of these black triangles, and in fact. Uh, just this morning, I found a case, I believe it was from 1972, of a black triangle uh, that was documented in the APRO files. And th- th- it was a very uh, coherent narrative written by this woman. And uh, she described in great detail this large, silent, triangular platform with the characteristic lighting configuration that we're used to hearing about today. But this was a report for, back from 1972. Hmm. What interested you in the Black Triangles to become literally the premier, I, most people hate this word, but I'm going to use it, expert in what's, uh, in what's yes, going Yes, I hate on. that word. I know you do. <laughs> I don't employ that word. I, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to be an expert on UFOs when we really don't know what we're investigating. Um, but uh, no, I, I became, and you mentioned this uh, at the beginning of the show, I became uh, active with MUFON in 1990. And there were a few topics that were really hot at that time. Uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida, was still pretty popular in 1990. Uh, Bob Lazar, uh, Area 51, that that whole story was really gaining a lot of traction in 1990 through the reporting efforts of George Knapp. Mm -hmm. The other one was the Belgian wave of triangular UFO sightings. And I immediately gravitated towards these reports. One, because of the sheer magnitude of these sightings we're not talking about a distant point of light in the sky we're talking in your face large objects hovering directly over people's either vehicles or or the individuals themselves that they're standing outside i just thought that as i as i characterize in my book i call these unambiguous ufo sightings it's not a question of did i see something it's really a question of what did i see because these dis- descriptions, as you know from firsthand experience, Dave, are very detailed in, in, in nature. And so 
I was captivated by the nature of the reporting, but also the fact that it was coming from the Belgian military, that they were acknowledging right. that these things were being cited. Right. And so to me, the bar of credibility specific to these things was much higher than me as a MUFON investigator talking to somebody about a point of light they saw for three seconds. I can see where that would be a little bit more interesting. Totally yes. see that. You more know. substantive, I guess you could say. Do you think the black triangles are ours, theirs, or a combination? I always say there's three sides of the triangle, and I think there's three possible explanations. A, it's ours. It's some type of advanced technology. B, it's someone else's. You can fill in the blank with what that might be. But I think three is probably the most honest answer I can give you. I think we're seeing a combination of both A and B. I think some of these are advanced aircraft that many people are reporting but I know a lot of people want to summarily discount all the triangles as ours, and they talk about the TR-3B like it's factual, like we know that a TR-3B exists. We really don't. It all goes back to the testimony of one man back in the 1990s, Mr. Edgar Fouché, who claimed that we had these vehicles, and then it's just kind of become an urban myth, uh, especially on social media and the Internet, uh, that we have a TR-3B. Um, I'm not saying that they might not be military, but I don't use the nomenclature TR-3B because there's no official documentation specific to that. Um, but what I'm fascinated with, Dave, and this is where I think looking at these things through the lens of history, when I started doing the research, and one of the reasons I wrote the book on the subject was I was seeing people make statements on the line, well, these triangles didn't appear until the 80s or 90s. And I'm right. sitting here looking at reports from 1940, 1950s, 1960s. And I felt like I needed to set the record straight. Right. Again, if we're going to talk about the history, let's make sure it's an accurate retelling of the history. And when I acquired the NICAP files, much like with the APRO files, I suddenly had 15 file cabinets dumped on me. The first thing I did, I went from pre-47 all the way up into the 1990s, and I went through all the NICAF files, and I, I, someone told me, I'm, I think it was Barry Greenwood said, you're probably the first person to go through the NICAF files specifically looking for triangles. I found 102 additional historical cases, some of those going back to the 1950s, describing the same shape, the same lighting configurations, and the exact same flight dynamics, including the dynamic of some of these triangles flying with the flat side as the leading edge with the point trailing behind. Little details like that. And again, if let's play devil's advocate, to be honest, if you wanted to concoct or hoax a UFO narrative, that's not what you're going to come up with. You're going to deliver a story that UFO investigators, flying saucer enthusiasts from the 60s and the 50s are going to accept you're going to say, I saw a 30-foot, sleek, shiny, silver flying saucer. Uh, a triangle back then was kind of a statistical outlier. It wasn't widely reported. But yet there did, did seem to be, based on my research, this undercurrent of triangles that were reported over the years. Hmm. Do we have a speed? Do we have answers as to whether or not they're all silent in their propulsion when they are flying? The vast majority are silent, but some of the historical cases, and I noted this in my lecture a few years ago, some of the reports have unusual sounds, uh, humming, buzzing, whirring sound, 
Uh, a droning sound has been described in some of the NICAP reports from the 50s and the 1960s. Uh, but the vast majority are usually completely silent. In fact, I mentioned earlier about the emotional component to the, some of these close encounter sightings. Um, something that I've encountered in interviewing many triangular UFO witnesses firsthand, but also I've read this in the narratives going back over the decades, people can't equate something that large, that low, with no sound. In fact, I had a couple, they were both almost in tears. This was in upstate Illinois, going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was still collecting data. They were retelling a, a sighting that they had driving their vehicle at night, and they got out of their, their car because they saw this, these illuminated lights affixed to something. And they both were almost in tears relaying this. They said, we felt so intimidated because to see something that large, yeah. that silent, that low over your head, and to not hear a sound, we literally felt like at any moment it was going to drop out of the sky and crush us. I, they said because even a blimp makes some type of noise. It makes a propeller sound. But the complete absence of sound is the one thing that most witnesses come away with, that they just they can't wrap their mind around that. Do witnesses with the black triangles have a lot of missing time associated with them as well? It's a great question. I'm glad you bring that up, Dave, because a lot of people will come up to me. They said, hey, I read your book, but I realized you didn't have any abduction accounts or missing time. I have to qualify my answer in stating the reason that I didn't is because I'm looking at newspaper articles and reports from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Back then, people weren't widely talking about abductions. However, in the uh, ensuing years after the book was published, I've received hundreds of reports all over the world. I just got one from Europe yesterday uh, of another triangle report. Um, I have been receiving some abduction accounts, some missing time experiences involved with triangular UFO reports. But as you can appreciate, even, even flying saucers, flying saucer reports, it really wasn't until 57 and that post-57 era going into the 60s where people started coming out with these abduction narratives. You just didn't really hear about it. Back in the 50s, you heard more about the contactees, not the abductees. We really do. We really do hear more and more about abductees as the days go forward. But unfortunately, due to today's scientific and military side of everything, David, we are literally looking at, you know, the experiencers being pushed away. And, and we have right. yet we have scientists like Gary Nolan who are sitting there saying, hold on a second, guys. We don't have any information without these people's leads and their knowledge. Absolutely. Of what they saw. Absolutely. You know, I mean, at some point, something has to give and both sides have to get along. But black, back to black triangles for a second, if you don't mind. In regards to the way they fly, do you think there is some sort of way to tell the difference between what is human and what is non-human? It's really hard to parse that out. Uh, I've been asked that question, you know, assuming that we are dealing, as I mentioned, with two different groups that have very similar objects. Uh, I just unfortunately don't have any level of discernment yeah, to, to separate I, those two. I figured that, but that that's a perfect answer nonetheless. Okay, so uh, have you ever been approached by someone uh, – 
anybody in a in a system or a government agency who's uh, who's senior work with the Black Triangles and said, "Hey, you're on the right path, or you're close," something along those lines. I've never had the luxury of having someone do that. It would be encouraging. It would be it would embolden my research if. I, I was able to get some type of outside validation, but uh, no, the, about the only one that really has expressed interest that was in a previous role uh, was uh, Chris Mellon. Uh, we did a History Channel episode for Unidentified, and uh, I always like to mention that we didn't meet just because of the TV show. Uh, a few years prior to that show ever uh, being developed, uh, Chris had reached out through a mutual friend, and he wanted to Happy Holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. I can't wait for what's next. Even with higher stroke risk due to atrial fibrillation in a regular heartbeat not caused by a heart valve problem. Eliquis, the Pixaban tablets, reduces stroke risk. It's the number one cardiologist prescribed blood thinner. Don't stop taking prescription Eliquis without talking to your doctor, as this may increase your risk of stroke. Eliquis can cause serious and in rare cases fatal bleeding. Don't take Eliquis if you have an artificial heart valve, abnormal bleeding, or have antiphospholipid syndrome. While taking, you may bruise more easily or take longer for bleeding to stop. A spinal injection while on Eliquis increases risk of blood clots, which may cause paralysis, the inability to move. Get medical help right away for unexpected bleeding or unusual bruising, or if you have tingling, numbness, or muscle weakness. It may increase your bleeding risk if you take medicines such as aspirin products, NSAIDs, SSRIs, SNRIs, and blood thinners. Tell your doctor about all planned medical or dental procedures. Learn more at Eliquis.com or call 1-855-ELIQUIS. Speak with me because he said he's always had a fascination with the triangles. And uh, even even now, when I come across intriguing cases, I'll send those to him. And uh, he's always very intrigued. And he's actually, I believe, just used some of the data I provided for a lecture he gave in Paris about a month ago. Um, but he's extremely, on a personal level, interested in the Triangle Reports. And then he was able to come here and film for the History Channel. And then we just continue to keep in touch. Uh, but his interest is more just, you know, from a personal level. But uh, never had anybody actively involved uh, in the scientific realm or military realm that have given me any kind of validation or suggestion that I'm along the right, looking along the right lines. Where do you think they're parking these craft? <laughs> well, uh, that's something I mentioned that, uh, you know, when you think of the logistics, just with, say, like a, a, a jet fighter, a conventional jet fighter, you think about the number of people that are required to maintenance a vehicle like that, the area that's required for various materials, fuel, et cetera. Uh, I've always wondered, you know, we don't have any reports of these large triangles taking off or landing at a military base. In fact, the famous case I investigated back in 2000 in Southern Illinois, the object flew by Scott Air Force Base, but uh, I always make it a point to state, yes, it was sighted near the base, but no one saw it take off or land at Scott Air Force Base. It simply did a, a little flyby. So um, uh, I don't know where the base of operations is. You know, whoever is operating these things, I, that's another big question mark. 
these these all, all coincide with a lot of things. The last triangle I saw was last year where things just seemed to light up, Dave, and this thing knew I was about to take a po- photograph of it. It knew. Yeah. Because I'm staring in the sky one moment, there's nothing there. Next thing I know, I got the two bright lights on the bottom. The third one lights up to make the triangle. And guess what happens the minute Dave decides to pull his phone out of his pocket? They disappear. Bye-bye. They disappear. <laughs> I mean, exactly. is that is that a common occurrence? It is. It is. That, and, uh, of course, we've heard this with not just triangles but other UFO reports. Someone has the camera right in their hand or right around their neck. And they see the object, and they're so taken aback by it that they just lose all sense of the fact that, you know, I in retrospect, why didn't I take a picture? But I, I, I have to sympathize and, and, and empathize with those individuals because I, I couldn't imagine what I would do. Uh, you know, having researched and read about these things is one thing, but Dave, you know, you've had actual experience related to these objects, and so... I can't sit here and say it's it's kind of like practicing for a fire drill, right? Okay, I know if a fire drill happens, I'll do X, Y, and Z. But until you're actually in a real fire, how do you know you're going to perform? Are Very you going true. to react? Are you going to do the things that in a in a in a normal frame of mind? Oh yes, of course I would do X, Y, Z. Well, you really don't know until you're in that experience. No, I I fully fully agree with what you're saying. You know, as we come down to the final two minutes with David Marler tonight on Spaced Out Radio. What an energetic, powerful show this has been. Incredible. And, uh, David, I'm such a fan of yours. What can we look forward to from you over, say, the next six months of 2024? Yeah, well, really still just going through the APRO files. Uh, I do have a few lectures that I'll be doing across uh, the United States. Uh, I'm not doing a lot because, as you can appreciate, at a local level, I'm just working on the archives and working with the government, both uh, local and state government, to try to secure funding. I did want to mention that I was contacted by one of the aides at State Senator Martin Heinrich's office last week, and they made us aware that the National Archives has some grants available for historic research projects, and they encouraged us to apply and try to get some National Archives and Record Administration grants. So. Uh, I'll be involved in kind of that sorted mess of trying to gather some funds and uh, try to work with some benefactors as well. Any any millionaires or corporations that would like to donate, we're a 501c3. Yeah. If we can raise the money and get this building, we could have the most incredible historical archive and educational center on the subject. That would be beautiful. Quick question here from Mama Catherine. Do you need an assistant? I will pay my own airfare. <laughs> now, mother, ma, well, Mama Catherine, I believe, taught in the university. So. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, Mama Catherine and, and a lot of other people, they're, they're, they're wanting to volunteer. But again, the research room we have now is so small because, again, we just had introduced 13 file cabinets and 60 boxes. That's why we need to get this, the additional space, and then we can have volunteers come in, and we would welcome volunteer help at that point. But quite literally, trying to find elbow room amongst the file cabinets and boxes, we just don't have the workspace yet. So we're hoping that eventually getting the building, absolutely, we would welcome having people, uh, whether local, out of state, or out of country, come in to assist. Wonderful. Where can people find your books? 
well, uh, my per- well, Amazon would be uh, the best place to go. Just Amazon.com. And then our organizational website, uh, if you want to learn more about the National UFO Historic Records Center, is www.nufohrc.org. Thank you so much, David Marler. What a treat it was to have you on Space Town Radio tonight. Hour 3 is coming up right after this break. You blew my mind tonight, Dave. Blue hey, two mind. fast hours just went by. I told you, my man. Don't be so afraid of the night shift. I think we had missing time. <laughs> we totally did. Totally did. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to pick your brain some more. And uh, what I would like to do is uh, maybe in 2024, w- once you do the tour, I know you're going to be sick about it, but maybe every few months bring you on and and uh, talk about what you've learned from opening up the new files. Absolutely. Uh, there's going to be lots of discoveries as I yeah. go go through the material. I mean, I just found color photographs of a landing trace case that we know about, but we never had color photos. And it actually came from the New Mexico State Police that provided them to APRO. Oh, wow. Amazing. Well, Dave, I'm going to let you get to bed here because I know Absolutely. it's late for you. Uh, good luck on these files, man. Good luck. Uh, thank you, Dave. And stay in touch, okay? Yeah. Merry Christmas to you and your lovely family. Same to you and your audience, okay? Take care. Good night. Take care now. Bye-bye. David Marler, everybody. That was like going 10 rounds with Mike Tyson tonight, and I took every punch as best as I could because that was amazing. Absolutely amazing. David Marler. What, that's why he's a hero of mine. I'll be right back, guys.
All right, everybody, I'm back. Morning, Dogman UK. How are you, buddy? All right. <clears throat> what a great interview. Blown away by it. Thank you tonight to Susan, Michael, W. Decker times two, Gizmo, and uh, T-Bone with three and a hat trick, and Major Lee for the Super Chats tonight. Very much appreciate the love, guys. <coughs> Excuse me. Hi, Chris. Teen, how you doing? Good to see you. And here we go with hour three, everybody. you like to connect with us head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info now back to dave scott and sor here we go with the third and final hour of spaced out radio tonight my name is dave scott very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call earth hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around north america digitally on odyssey radio TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us, will you, at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. And what do you got for us, Clam? Let's see here. Wagonette. Wagonette is your password. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as the clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us on Patreon in the SOR Space Travelers Club. It is that time of the night to say hello to Steve Stockton from the YouTube channel Among the Missing and another creepy story. Hello, friends. Welcome to Among the Missing YouTube channel on Spaced Out Radio. I'm Steve Stockton, and I'm about to take you on an unbelievable journey of people just like you. Their stories and encounters will haunt us on Among the Missing. Hi, Steve. I saw your call for stories for Midnight Mailbox, and I thought I'd send you one of my strange encounters. This is totally serious, and it really happened. It was the weirdest hiking trip of my life. I was out in the tall trees, the ones that make you feel like you're in some giant's backyard. Deep, dark woods straight out of a movie where the sunlight barely pokes through. I usually don't get scared, but on this hike, I was frightened out of my wits. First of all, I'd strayed from the usual trail. Classic mistake, I know. But curiosity had gotten the better of me. The deeper into the woods I went, the quieter it got. Suddenly, I noticed there were no bird sounds, no leaf rustling, nothing. Just this creepy silence that was all around me. Then, all of a sudden, I stepped into a clearing. Sunlight beaming through the trees, and in the middle, an ancient-looking circle of stones. It wasn't very big, but it was indeed 
placed there by human hands. As I'm circling these rocks, I spot these funky symbols etched into them. Not gonna lie, it looked like some kind of bizarre alien tic-tac-toe game. And then I hear what sounds like people chatting in the distance. I'm standing there thinking, what is happening? It sounded ancient. I felt this weird energy, but that's what happened. The next strange thing that was part of this hike, I'm on this narrow trail, trees closing in like a tunnel, and I hear footsteps behind me, leaves crunching, but every time I stop, it stops. I turn, nothing. It's just me, my echoing footsteps, and this feeling of being watched. And then, off in the trees, I see a misty figure. I'm squinting, making sure that my mind's not playing tricks. But no, it's a shadowy somebody or something just standing there. I wanted to call out, but it was like my voice was gone. I started to take a step closer, and it was gone. I'm standing there with my heart racing, wondering what I just had a close encounter with. The last part of this particular hiking adventure, I'd set up camp by a stream and cooked up some beans out of a can when I hear like this soft humming noise. And again, I'm like, what is that? I followed the sound to another clearing, but this time it was full of fireflies. If you've ever seen the synchronous fireflies of the Smokies, that's what it looked like. It looked like they were making these crazy patterns in the air. Then, in the same clearing, a deer wanders through. Not an average deer. This deer was blacker than black, and its eyes were glowing. And the deer and I, we had this deep moment, locked eyes and all that, like the forest is putting on a show just for me. Somehow, I managed to fall asleep, and when morning breaks, it's back to normal. I can hear birds chirping, leaves rustling in the trees. The stone circle's still there, but it looks benign and old. With the shadow figure and the whispers all gone, like some kind of bizarre dream. I packed up my camp, thinking the trail back home might not even be there, but thankfully it was. I can't explain the things that happened, but it felt like I crashed a secret party in the woods. Either I had some sort of weird hallucination, or Mother Nature is hiding some wild secrets. If you'd like to hear more stories, let me know. You won't believe the other things that have happened to me. Thanks again for reading my story, and I look forward to the show. Signed, Anonymous. And thank you to Steve Stockton from Among the Missing for coming on in and giving us a real cool update on Among the Missing to kick off hour number three, as he does each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. And if you want more, just head over to his YouTube channel, hit subscribe, and ring that bell. From the missing to the mysterious, it's time for Christmas Duke and the Cryptid Report. Thank you, Christmas Duke, for World Bigfoot Radio. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Hey, Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Glad to be here for one more time this year. 
before I pack it in for 2023. And I got my Christmas outfit on here. And I'm feeling all Christmassy because after working on it for eight months, part one of Inevitably Finding Bigfoot is coming out this Sunday. And you all can look forward to the greatest spaghetti western Bigfoot documentary ever because it's the only one so far. And uh, <clears throat> at the beginning of it, it starts out with this little interlude with several deer that are hanging out in a little group right off the deck of where I live. And it's last spring, so none of them have any antlers or anything, and they're all kind of bunched up, so great video. So tonight I'm talking to one of my friends on the phone, and I go and look out on the deck, and here's this huge buck in the park across the street from me. He sees me come out on the deck, and he beelines it for me. And I go, oh, my God, I got to get out the phone. I got a friend coming to visit. And he's like, what? And I go, I'll call you back. So here comes this huge buck right, uh, right up to my porch like I figured he was going to. And I know he wants an apple, and I don't have any apples. So I went and grabbed a couple slices of rye pumpernickel bread, and I gave him those. And I videotaped it. So he not only is at the beginning of the show, but I'm going to put him in the end of it, too. <laughs> Because here it is a year later, and he's showing up with all of his big, huge antler rack. Hey, give me some more munchies. I ain't going away. <laughs> so that's pretty hilarious. Also this year, I uh, have a very special special from uh, the absolutely terrifying tyrant and overlord of Yeti Stan, a secret country nestled somewhere high in the Himalayas, is planning on terrifying the world with a Christmas special. And he's going to let me put it out on my channel. And in addition to a news report about those giant tracks that the Indian Army found on the slopes of Makalu a few years ago, um, he's also going to do a recitation of Twas the Night Before. Happy Holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax and delivery may be required. See store for details. Verbo Vacation Homes come with 24-7 live support. So if you ever need anything, you can reach a real person in about a minute. Hey, how can I help? Verbo, private vacation rentals for you and your people. For Christmas, what he claims is the original version from Yeti Stan. And this involves capturing Santa Claus and a bunch of other interesting things. So if you guys want to uh, laugh your butts off on Christmas, uh, tune in for that one. Uh, other than that, uh, just really looking forward to the holiday season here and getting a week off afterwards. Well, you know what? And we should remind our audience that Next week, which would have been your final time on Spaced Out Radio for 2023, uh, we are taking the night off. So this is officially your final appearance until 2024, my friend. Right on, right on. Well, we're going to wrap it up with uh, David Weatherly's Monsters of Big Sky Country. And it also subtitled Cryptids and Legends of Montana. As you may recall where we left off, we were talking about the little people. Yes. And specifically about uh, Miniku. And that he had had a meeting with these little people. They let him come right in and have a meeting with them. And they didn't give him a medicine bundle or anything, but let's go back to that. Uh, 
One of the little people says he will be chief. I can give him nothing. He already possesses the power to become great if he will just use it. Let him cultivate his senses. Let him use the powers which Abat-Dat-Dea gave him, and he will go far. The difference between men grows out of the use or non-use of what was given them in the first place. Plenty Koo, we the dwarfs, the little people, have adopted you and will be your helpers throughout your life on this world. We have no medicine bundle for you. They are cumbersome things at best and are often in a warrior's way. Instead, we offer you advice. Now listen. It is you, as in all men, our natural powers. You have a will. Learn to use it. Make it work for you. Sharpen your senses as you sharpen your knife. Remember the wolf smells better than you do because he has learned to depend on his nose. It tells him every secret that winds carry because he uses it all the time. Makes it work for him. We can give you nothing. You already possess everything necessary to become great. Use your powers. Make them work for you. And you will become a chief. So when he was still young, Plenty Koo had another experience with the little people. This time, the young man was in the crazy mountains to fast and seek another vision. After ritual cleansing, he waited for a message. But after a long process, finally one of the little people again showed up and led the crow boy to a vision, one that he learned signaled the disappearance of the buffalo and the presence of cattle. Plenty Koo's long vision had other messages too, including information about the tribe's survival and the facts that they would have the land seen from the Medicine Rocks. Today, the Crow Nation is only a short distance from the Pryor Mountains and Medicine Rocks. Some scholars believe Plenty Koo's vision was profoundly important to the tribe. As noted in the series Religions of the United States in Practice, Volume 1, quote, the Crow people survived the deepest crisis of the 19th century, in part because of Plenty Koo's vision. An important site connected to Plenty Koo's vision is now the Chief Plenty Koo State Park. In the early 1900s, S.C. Sims gathered some accounts of the Crow tribe's thoughts on little people and their power. Sims wrote about the tribe for the Columbian Museum's Anthropological Series, Volume 2, Number 5. Sims informants told him about a location where barren women would leave baby moccasins, hoping to receive a blessing and be able to bear children. Sims also collected other accounts related to the dwarves. Quote, they were strong. I heard a woman tell that she had seen tracks like those of children at the mouth of a cave. Afterward, she had a dream in which she was fasting and found animal bones outside. A woman the size of my granddaughter, about nine years old, came out, adopted her, and gave her some medicine. She fasted for four days. After her return, she came to own large teepees and plenty of horses. I've heard another man tell that he had seen tracks near the rock as well. And then it goes on to one specific report, the most noteworthy one, the Pedro Mountain Mummy. While the Pedro Mountains are technically located in Wyoming, uh, David has included the following information about the discovery of the mummy in a range due to the strong connection to the Little People legends in Montana. In 1932, Cecil Maine and Frank Carr were looking for gold. They had been working a rich vein in the San Pedro Mountains, 60 miles from Casper, Wyoming, but they kept running into more and more rock, making it difficult to extract the valuable ore. Finally, they used dynamite to blast a section of the mountainside, hoping to get to more gold. As the dust of the blast settled, the cave came into view. 
The small cavern was about 15 feet long and 4 feet high. The men had no idea the cave was there until the blast revealed the opening. The entrance had been completely sealed from the outside world, but the dynamite had opened it enough that they could enter. Inside, they made an amazing discovery. Sitting on a rock ledge was a mummy. The figure was human and in a cross-legged sitting position, its hands folded in its lap. Seated, it was about six and a half inches tall and was estimated that the standing height of the figure would have been about 14 inches. The figure's skin was brown and wrinkled and the face appeared to be that of an old man. The forehead was low and flat the eyes were heavy-lidded, and the nose flat and the mouth wide with thin lips. The mummy was so well-preserved that its fingernails could still be seen on its hands. The top of the figure's head was covered in a dark jelly-like substance that was still pliable. Was this a mummy of one of the region's famous dwarves? The prospectors took the mummy to Casper, where it caused quite a stir. Scientists from all over came to study the find, and speculations ran rampant. Experts initially thought the mummy was a hoax, but others were not so sure. Therefore, x-rays were done, and they showed that the mummy had a human skeleton. A careful study of the body also revealed that the being, whatever it was, had met a violent end. The spine was damaged, the collarbone broken, and the skull had been smashed in by a heavy blow to the head. The soft substance on the head was determined to be congealed blood and exposed brain tissue. Another odd finding was that the mummy had a full set of canines and the teeth are overly pointed. Again, this harkened to the traditional stories of the region's little people and their mouths full of sharp teeth. After the test results were in, scientists stated that the mummy was that of a full-grown adult, 65 years of age at the time of his death. As with any such find, there was controversy. Allegedly, the tests were performed by the American Museum of Natural History and further certified as genuine by Harvard's University's Department of Anthropology. Alternate reports claim the mummy was later examined by the University of Wyoming, where it was determined that the body was that of a child. And that's BS. For years, the mummy was displayed in sideshows. It was purchased by a Casper, Wyoming businessman named Ivan T. Goodman, who reportedly kept it on display in his store window. Some sources indicate that it was Goodman who took the mummy for examination and x-rays. According to Lawrence and Ober in Montana Myths and Legends, the examination was performed by Dr. Harry Shapiro of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. The same book reports that Dr. George Gill, an anthropology professor from the University of Wyoming, received the x-rays and concluded that the mummy was that of an infant or fetus, and he was wrong. The more skeptical-minded embraced Gill's proclamation that the mummy was merely a human child rather than something more unusual, but it should be noted that by all indications, Gill only studied the x-rays and not the mummy itself. When Ivan Goodman passed away in 1950, the mummy was purchased by a New York businessman named Leonard Walder, and when Walder died in the 1980s, the mummy vanished. Legend says that the mummy brought bad luck to those who possessed it, though there are really no tales that elaborate on this claim. Main and Carr, the prospectors who first found the mummy and brought it to the world's attention, never had any real luck with their mining operations. They registered the claim in Carbon County and dubbed it Little Man Mine, but it never really produced much gold. Today, a sign in the Shirley Basin signifies the location of where the old mine used to be. Wow. 
And that one, those x-rays are still around. You can Google image them and find those. I mean, that's like, <laughs> they're easy to find. Whatever it was, it looked like a human. It was 14 inches tall. It wasn't some, uh, you know, chopped together monster that somebody put together. This is a real thing. And uh, it wasn't a child either because the actual several bone experts looked at it and went in order for the wear and tear on the spinal column and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole bunch of factors you could look at. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised this clown in Wyoming came up with the opposite opinion because there's a bunch of ways that you can tell how old a skeleton is. In other words, how long it lived, which has a lot to do with the wear on it and other factors. So, you know, they were 100% convinced, you know, this guy was like in his 60s when he died, this little 14-inch tall guy. It's almost like like the little people. Hmm? I mean, 14 inch tall guy. I mean, we're almost talking about like the Indian legend of the, of the little people. That's exactly what we're talking about. And, you know, they, uh, the mummy itself appears to show that it had like little buckskins on it and stuff too, which is the same report that we get from here, Mm -hmm. from all the old reports and modern reports that they look just like little miniature natives. They have their hair in braids. They wear buckskin clothes, a whole ball of wax. So it matches perfectly with what's uh, been reported forever around here. So here's some modern accounts of the little people. How much time do we got? We have about three minutes before we go to break. Okay. Let's see how many of these we can get through. Shirley Smith had a long fascination with the region's little people. For 40 years, Smith owned the Little Cowboy Bar and Museum in Fromberg, Montana. Smith sold the business in 2012, and sadly it was lost in a fire in December 2013. The bar and museum gained quite a reputation in its time. In 2007, it was named Montana's Best Bar by Esquire magazine, and the museum side had thousands of items from the region's history. During her time running the business, Smith would readily discuss tales of the little people with patrons, and she collected many stories and anecdotes about them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Amid the historical documents Smith found was an account of two cowboys who, after being on the trail for several days, settled in around a campfire for the night. One of the men woke late in the night to check out the fire and discovered that he and his companion were surrounded oh, by no. a band of little people. To his shock, they were no more than three feet tall. Other people tell tales of going into the prior mountains. Oh, don't do that. And finding campsites ready, complete with campfires going, but no one around. Smith herself had such an experience when she and four other people went to picnic on the lower edge of the prior mountains. It was a sunny summer day, and they arrived at their designated picnic site around noon. To everyone's surprise, they found a freshly constructed fire waiting for them. Not something normal for the middle of a sunny day, but there was no one else in sight. Smith recalls seeing the famous mummy when she was seven years old, but it's not the only mummy story she has. She reports that an uncle who ranches around the prior mountains discovered another burial site connected to the little people. The man was digging an irrigation ditch with his tractor when a section of dirt collapsed, revealing a large cave. He retrieved a lantern and returned to the site to investigate. Peering inside, he discovered that three sides of the cave were filled with dirt shelves lined with the petrified mummies of little people. Rather than report the find, the man covered the cave entrance right. and has refused to disclose its location to anyone. <sighs> nah, no, I don't blame him. <laughs> no, not at all, Super Duke. 
1991, two members of the Crow Tribe shared a story with Rich Pitsley, former manager of Plenty Coup State Park. They reportedly were surveying a shallow cave in an area near the reservation when one woman took a break for lunch. She sat down near a cave entrance, and suddenly, a little man appeared. He was about three feet tall, powerfully built, dressed in old-fashioned traditional animal hide clothing. The little man vanished, and the woman and her friend decided to say a prayer and leave an offering of food at the location. Did they get anything back? It doesn't say that they did. Mm. Greedy. Well, dude, hold on right there, because we are going to go to break here at the bottom of the hour. It's our final break of the night here on Spaced Out Radio. Super Duke. We call him Christmas Duke at this time of year with a cryptid report. More stories and more updates from Spaced Out Radio tonight, World Bigfoot Radio on the Mighty SOR. Take care. Stay tuned. Okay, we got about five minutes, Duke. I'm just gonna Alrighty. I'm just gonna step away for a minute, okay? Yeah, me too. I'm gonna have part of a sig.
finally get a nice breeze going through here, man. Holy cow, it got hot in here. Penny Van, how are you? Oh, it's my string. I thought there was like a bug on me. Oob to Joe's Maine, you've got aliens. Hi, Lola. Give Lola a little pet for us, Joe. She gnaws down on your toenails for the night. Super Duke! 30 seconds. Uh, thank you, Puck Elf, Susan, Michael, Major Lee, Gizmo, T-Bone with a hat trick, W. Decker with two. Thank you for the beautiful Super Chats tonight, everybody. Very much appreciate the love and support, especially this time of year. And uh, don't forget to shop at our store, spacedoutradio.com. We do not have ugly swag. No, we don't. Here we go, everybody. Final half hour of Spaced Out Radio is underway. Super Duke is here. The Cryptid Report. And we will get to them momentarily. But first, we want to remind all of you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot. Read the Newswire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us on Patreon in the Space Travelers Club. Here we go, the Cryptid Report, Super Duke, known around these parts as Christmas Duke tonight, and the Cryptid Report. How you doing, Duke? Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Well, that's very nice. And it's time for all the good little children to hear some more scary little people reports. So, some sightings of the little people, they say, are quite strange. In 1998, a crow woman reported that she saw a little man along a two-lane road on the reservation. The little man was pushing a wheelbarrow as he strode along the road. But stranger still, he was wearing what the woman described as a Elvis Presley-style outfit. Initially, she thought she was so tired she was hallucinating, but later this... Happy holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Verbo Vacation Homes come with 24-7 live support. So if you ever need anything, you can reach a real person in about a minute. Hey, how can I help? Verbo. Private vacation rentals for you and your people. Same day her sister described seeing the same little man while on the same road. Further confirmation came when the woman shared their sightings with others and found out that a local farmer was frustrated 
because his wheelbarrows had disappeared. A thread about the little people of the prior mountains of the Unexplained Mysteries Forum had an interesting post in 2016. A user going under the forum name, quote, the paranormal site, unquote, recounts a story he heard while growing up on the Crow Reservation. The poster recounts a story told by his father involving a tribal medicine man and his interactions with the little people. This medicine man would stay up on the buffalo pasture through the winter and keep an eye on the herd. He was an absolute believer in the little people and said he used to trade with them when he was snowed in at the cabin by the pasture. He said that he would keep packages of tobacco on hand, and when he was low on food, he would leave a package of tobacco on the front deck of the cabin. In the morning, the package would be gone, and in its place would be a freshly killed deer. Reportedly, the man finally got curious about the little people and what they looked like, so he decided to stay awake and watch them make the trade. He put a pouch of tobacco out in the trade and waited. He saw a single little man haul a deer up to the porch and drop it off. He said the moon was full, so he got a fairly good look at the being, that it was perfectly proportioned, heavily muscled man, around two feet tall, but an overly large head that had a large nose and a mouthful of sharp teeth. The poster notes that his father had likely heard the story sometime in the mid-1950s, and the man trades with the little people were probably sometime between the 1930s and the 1950s. Okay, that report is not correct. And the reason that I know is because his great niece was on my show and told the story detail for detail. She knew him. She's also had little people sightings. So if you want the rest of the story, and it's way more riveting than this account is, go check it out on my channel, The Little People. He also says, I received a report from a Montana resident who told me that she had seen a little person while hiking in Montana in 2016. The woman and a younger male friend were on a day hike on a beautiful late spring day when they spotted what she describes as a little man. Quote, we were climbing up the trail and had just stopped for a brief break and some water. My hiking companion that day was a younger relative, and he wasn't used to hiking much. He was sitting on a rock, and I had just passed him a water bottle when I heard a noise from up to my right. I looked up into the rocks, expecting to see an animal, but it wasn't an animal. It was a small man, maybe a couple of feet tall. Witness told me the little man stood there looking down at them for a few seconds, then turned and walked across the rocks and was quickly out of view. Quote, he was almost like a garden gnome, but his clothes were not brightly colored. He was dressed in a button shirt and pants with the boots on. He had a red hat, but it was a dull red in color, and it was short, not tall like you typically see in gnome drawings. I just don't know what to think. I, I wasn't tired or hallucinating from heat or exhaustion, and my nephew saw the little man too. I know what I saw. Do the mountains of Montana still hide a race of dwarves? While it may seem unlikely to many people in the modern world, modern sightings are, at the least, puzzling and leave one wondering exactly what mysteries we may still uncover in the years to come. And as a side note, I was on another show about a month and a half ago, and the two hosts on the show talked about having come up here to Montana this summer, and they stopped and camped for a while, and there were a bunch of cowboys there. So they went up and asked the cowboys, Hey, have you guys ever seen anything unusual? 
searching for Bigfoot sightings. That's what they were looking for. And none of the cowboys reported having seen any Bigfoot, but they all started telling them stories about the little people, which most of them had actually seen, wow. which blew their minds. Now, let me ask they, you a quick question here before you move on. What do these little people look like? Now, the ones that look different in different parts of the country, the ones around here tend to look just like miniature natives, but overly big round heads, uh, mouthful of sharp teeth, um, 18 inches to two feet tall, generally reported size, where buckskins have hair and braids. Same way that they've looked probably for, you know, <laughs> however long they've been here, thousands of years. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. But they are different in different parts of the country. There's apparently different kinds of little people. So that is not a anything you can apply to other parts of the country. So from there we go to weird things up in the big sky. The prehistoric age was filled with strange and wondrous creatures, many that scientists are still learning about, putting together the pieces of a complex biological puzzle as best as they can, considering the limited evidence. While the average person is familiar with something as spectacular as a woolly mammoth, there are countless other creatures that roamed the world during the prehistoric age, even giant bugs. Meganeura were giant dragonflies with wingspans that could reach up to two feet in length. They lived 300 million years ago during the Carboniferous. So we're talking about a long way from the modern world. Right. But remarkably, one of these long-gone creatures may have been found by a crow medicine man in the 19th century. A medicine man named Goes Ahead was a member of the Crow tribe who became a scout for George Armstrong Custer's 7th Cavalry during the campaign against the Sioux and Cheyenne in 1876. The Sioux and Cheyenne were traditional enemies of the Crow Nation, and Goes Ahead was one of the several Crow scouts employed by the U.S. forces at the time. Goes Ahead was a survivor of the famous Battle of the Little Bighorn and was a witness to Custer's death. His accounts of the battle proved of great value to historians and piecing together a vivid picture of the famous battle. In 1870, 20-year-old Goes Ahead went on a vision quest in Wolf Mountains. During his period of fasting, he saw a strange sight, a winged creature unlike anything he had ever seen before. Alma Snell, the granddaughter of Goes Ahead, related the details of her grandfather's vision quest as it has been told to her by her father and her grandmother, Pretty Shield. Pretty Shield was the wife of Goes Ahead and was herself also a medicine woman. In Fossil Legends of the First Americans, Adrian Meir relates Snell's account of Go Ahead's, Goes Ahead's vision quest. Quote, Goes Ahead noticed what he thought was a bird flying very awkwardly, unbalanced, as though the body was too heavy for its wings. It fell, twisted at his feet, and he saw that although it had wings, it was not a bird, but more like a serpent. Lizard-like, said Alma. The body was long and heavy, serpentine, with wings something like a dragonfly's and a tail. Goes ahead, picked up the strange creature, took it home, encased it in beadwork, and wrapped it up. This became his main medicine. Goes ahead, carried the mummified creature with him everywhere. Some even believe the man's medicine power was instrumental in his survival of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Some sources say Goes Ahead knew that Custer was going to lose the battle that day. Whatever the case, after the now-famous fight, Goes Ahead went to Squaw Butte, a pine-covered ridge, where he climbed high into the treetops and carved the image of his medicine creature onto the bark of a tree. 
Almost 100 years later, in 1973, historian William Boys and Alma Snell traveled to the Little Bighorn battlefield. Boys knew that Gozahead had carved something up in the tree, and with Snell's guidance, he sought out the exact location. Boys located the tree, climbed it, and found the carving left by Gozahead. According to the historian, the impression was a careful carving about 15 to 18 inches long that must have taken hours to make. Boyce said the carving resembled both a winged serpent and a dragonfly. It's notable that Snell didn't tell Boyce what the creature looked like, so he was under no preconceived notion when he looked for the carving that had been left by the old warrior. Boyce made a sketch of what he found that day, and his drawing resembles a dragonfly. Sadly, the amazing artifact is no longer with us. Goes ahead kept the preserved creature until 1900, the year that he converted to Christianity. After his baptism, he believed the medicine object was a pagan symbol and disposed of it. Reportedly, either he or someone close to him threw the item into the Little Bighorn River, where it was, we can guess, lost forever. Adrian Mayer notes the learning of two other natives who reportedly witnessed strange flying creatures <clears throat> similar to what goes ahead saw. One is Chief Medicine Crow, who reportedly saw a, quote, snake with wings, that he drew a sketch of sometime in 1880. The other is a Native American artist named Wayne George, who Mayer met. George reported that during his own vision quest, he had seen both dinosaurs and a Meganura. Really? And, uh, yeah, interesting to note that snake with wings, that's the Quetzalcoatl from South and Central America, the winged serpent, the flying snake, so, very strange reports there. Don't need any. Of and now that, this man. is one of Dave's favorite ones, and he's oh, always worried about this. He's always wearing a cone-shaped hat that's waterproof, just in case. Because now we're going to talk about Thunderbirds. It should. <clears throat> it should come as no surprise that the sweeping skies of Montana have yielded reports of Thunderbirds. In fact, I think I may have spotted one about three years ago, but uh, we'll read, read these other reports. In cryptozoology, the term Thunderbird has become somewhat generic and is often used for large flying bird-like creatures that have been reported by people all over the United States. In some cases, the descriptions sound like normal birds, other than their incredible size, with feathers, beaks, and other avian features. In other cases, witnesses report flying creatures that resemble something from prehistoric times with massive heads, long tails, and leathery wings. And yeah, I was just looking at a video yesterday that somebody took over Idaho that looks exactly like a pteranodon flying over it. Really? I don't know what the hell they filmed, but it looked exactly like a pteranodon. <clears throat> Thunderbirds are a puzzling subject, as cryptozoologist Mark A. Hall writes in his book, Thunderbirds, America's Living Legends of Giant Birds. Quote, Thunderbirds do not yet have a place in ornithology, but like many strange animals people report, they will not go away. Thunderbirds have been sustained by American Indian traditions, by historical and modern record of uncommon claims, and even by physical evidence, most of which has not been preserved for present-day examination. Some cryptozoologists theorize that Thunderbird sightings are the result of witnesses making a mistake in their assessment of the size of the object. Determining the size of something flying in the sky without any nearby points of reference can be difficult, even for trained observers. 
condors, eagles, herons, and other known birds with large wingspans may seem much larger to someone on the ground, especially if that bird is one that is rarely seen. Of course, scientists don't believe that something as massive as a thunderbird actually exists. Pointing to the relative lack of sightings and photographic or other evidence and noting that with legions of bird watchers around the country, surely one of them would capture compelling evidence to support the existence of such creatures. Oh, you mean like that video I just talked about? Despite scientific naysayers, Thunderbird legends can be found in the traditions of many Native American tribes, and modern accounts do appear. According to the Kootenai, which lived right north of me, Thunderbirds were once humans and were sinister in nature. Frank B. Linderman's mentions in the book, uh, this creature in his book, Kootenai Why Stories, the authorized edition, in a passage that cautions people of the Thunderbirds' powers, quote, Old man has painted the leaves and they will soon dance with the north wind. The season when the Thunderbirds visit us has gone. They will come no more until the leaves are green again. And that's when I saw the one that I think was a Thunderbird in the spring. They were wicked persons when this world was young, but now they do not make war unless they know that people have spoken against them. It is bad to speak ill of the Thunderbird. Yes, or even think bad thoughts of them, for thinking bad thoughts is the same as speaking them aloud. And the Thunderbirds hear our thoughts. Remember this. Beyond folkloric legend, there are accounts of physical sightings of Thunderbirds among regional tribes. Claude Schaefer recorded several accounts from members of the Blackfoot Nation who reported seeing Thunderbirds in Montana in the 19th century. An account of Schaefer's findings was published in the June 1951 issue of the Journal of the Washington Academy of Science, volume 41, number 6. Schaefer, a French archaeologist, spent time with the South Pegan Blackfoot and learned some of their traditional stories about what the tribe called Omaxa Pitao, meaning Big Pitao, Pitao being the Blackfoot name for the Golden Eagle. So like a big Golden Eagle. And Golden Eagles are big. <laughs> In terms of Thunderbirds, the earliest account Schaefer collected came from the 1860s. The account relates to a physical sighting and indicates that, like the Kootenai, the tribe also believed Thunderbirds were evil in nature. In the 1860s, a party of Blackfoot led by Heavy Runner set out on a horse raid against the Crow tribe. When they reached Bear Creek, they spotted a massive bird flying directly before them. Heavy Runner believed the creature was an ill omen and decided to turn back and abandon the raid. Most of the men agreed with him, but six men ignored the sign and continued. Five of them were killed during the attempted raid, seemingly affirming that the bird was a sign of bad fortune. In 1879, Mary Jane, the daughter of a Blackfoot named Red Paint, was with her white husband at a summer camp in the Glacier National Park when they spotted four of the giant birds. Two seemed to be juveniles, and it appeared that the birds were nesting somewhere on Chief Mountain. And then it shows a picture of that, and it looks a lot like Devil's Tower. <laughs> Years later, a thunderbird flew over the southern section of the Blackfoot Reservation in 1897. It was spotted by a man named Big Crow and his wife. They said the creature was immense and dark, with a feathered ruff and bald head. Now that kind of sounds like a vulture, or a condor. 
A man named George Bull Child spotted a Thunderbird flying over the reservation in 1908. Several other witnesses were present, including an elder who identified the creature as a Thunderbird. Schaefer and other researchers believe the sightings of the California condor may explain accounts from the Blackfoot and other early peoples of Montana. California condor, New World vulture, huge one. Largest land bird in North America with a wingspan of 9.8, that's almost 10 feet. Their plumage is black with patches of white on the undersides of their wings. Their heads are bald and their skin ranges in color from gray to yellow and bright orange. Condors are scavengers and have a long lifespan, reaching up to 60 years of age in the best conditions. And California condors were driven close to extinction due to human elements, including poison and hunting. The U.S. government captured the remaining wild condors in the late 80s and began a program to save the birds. In 91, conservationists started releasing them back into the wild. <clears throat> Fossils of condors have been found as far away as Florida and New York, suggesting the species was once spread over a much wider range of North America. This could indicate the Shaper is correct in his belief that members of the Blackfoot Nation were seeing condors. Other researchers aren't so sure. After extensive research, Mark Hall came to believe the Thunderbird sightings collectively suggested that a rare, large bird unknown to science had lived in North America. Hall further suggested that members of the species may still survive in remote pockets of wilderness. Uh, Terrathornus, there's your uh, scientific, go look up the skeleton of that. After collecting numerous eyewitness accounts, Hall concluded that this undiscovered species had several characteristics, including a wingspan measuring 15 to 25 feet, that matches what I saw, a height of 4 to 8 feet, a head and neck devoid of feathers, dark plumage colored black, brown, or gray, what I saw had black feathers, feet capable of carrying heavy loads. Hall wrote that while Thunderbirds had an outward appearance like that of a California condor, they were predatory in nature, feeding on large games such as deer, caribou, colts, dogs, and on occasion, humans. Hall also believed the birds have a long lifespan are primarily nocturnal, which would explain why you don't see them very much, and could be migratory. Fossil records suggest that large predatory birds known as teratorans likely lived at the same time as early humans, and these creatures had wingspans 12 to 18 feet, so they were massive birds. These parameters certainly fit the mold of Native American lore and accounts and even modern reports of thunderbirds. We do not time. A modern sighting was reported to multiple sources in October 87 and came from a young man named Matthew O'Brien. Matt and his father were traveling east in Montana on I-90 when they spotted a giant bird. The pair were somewhere in the middle of the state when the incident occurred. The bird was flying south to north. O'Brien reports, It was the largest bird I have ever seen, bigger than an eagle or turkey vulture, wingspan 15 to 20 feet, shaped like a bird of prey. And that's what I saw. Brief sighting as we were driving at 60 miles per hour on the freeway. Saw it through the windshield for 10 or 15 seconds before we weren't under it anymore. It was perhaps a few hundred feet up in the air. My friend and fellow researcher Ken Gerhard chronicled a Thunderbird report from early September 94 involving a 21-year-old man named Tony. Tony and his younger brother were backpacking near a spot known as Beartooth Plateau, a high-elevation range on the state's border with Wyoming. Camping at night near a small lake, 
They heard a loud splash from something hitting the water. Tony saw it in his peripheral vision. It was moving fast. I reacted, spinning back around. Gigantic bird-like shape. Super Duke, another great job. And Merry Christmas to you, my friend, as we listen to Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thaw rocking us in the background with Little Brother is Watching. Yes, Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio, rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in at home, at work, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, Elgab, Facebook, Spreaker, LinkedIn, the Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter, hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Remember, this show is copyright by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us, because together, my friends, we own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, we've got room for them, too. Good night. Happy holidays from Ashley. Hurry into your local Ashley store where now through the end of the year, you can take advantage of low monthly payments with 60-month special financing on in-store purchases. And get ready to ring in the new year with new styles for every room of your home. The new year sale starts December 26th, only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax and delivery may be required. See store for details. Verbo Vacation Homes come with 24-7 live support. So if you ever need anything, you can reach a real person in about a minute. Hey, how can I help? Verbo, private vacation rentals for you and your people.